Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Lion King. Over the years, Walt Disney Studios has taken us on unforgettable journeys from under the sea in The Little Mermaid to an enchanted castle in Beauty and the Beast and into a whole new world with Aladdin. Now, for the summer of 1994, Disney animators will take you deep into the wilds of Africa for Disney's 32nd all-new full-length animated feature, The Lion King. It's an extraordinary original story about a heroic young cub named Simba, destined to become king of the jungle. To create a cast of realistic animal characters, Disney's artists drew inspiration for their work by sketching and studying the real things. Some of their subjects were even invited right into the studio. With seven original songs by pop superstar Elton John and Aladdin's Academy Award-winning lyricist Tim Rice, The Lion King will take you on a journey to a dazzling new world of adventure. Okay, we're back. Continuing the Disney specials with what may be a major favourite with many, many people, much like Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King. For many, many years, my favourite animated film of all time, now heavily contested by some more recent editions. A film that, as Daniel was just saying before we started up, looking at how it was put together, it's kind of surprising how good it actually is. We'll talk about that in a bit. Hello, Daniel. Hello. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Okay, so uh, what's the story regarding um, how this came about? Because you were talking about executives' uh, ideas, and, and specifically, I think Katzenberg has hinted heavily that, that he was um, uh, that this got to him on a very emotional level. And I know while he when he said emotions, it was like a robot spitting out a code that equated to emotions. <laughs> but I, I I could almost see the man beneath his veneer with that. But uh, what do you know, Dan? Uh, well, as I understand it, basically, uh, unlike many of the other Disney features stories, which were based on some existing property or on a rare occasion, like with uh, Lady and the Tramp, something that was kind of conceived of internally, mm. this one was essentially the seed of the idea came from three Disney executives, which when you say when you say that instantly sounds like a recipe for disaster. But yeah. it's so during the uh, I guess the promotional um stuff for Oliver and Company. Uh, Katzenberg and Schneider and Roy Disney, I believe, were on a plane and they started, uh, somebody mentioned the idea of doing some sort of film set in Africa and Katzenberg jumped on that and then he, I don't know, they just started talking about it and basically the the germ of the idea is kind of based on something to do and they never really go into a lot of specifics with Katzenberg's earlier life. I think when he was kind of trying to when he was working at more in the political sector. Mm. Didn't Sharon, you found out that he became like an assistant to a politician age 14. 
Yeah, something like that. It was um, touched on briefly in um, one of the documentaries, and I thought they were going to go into more depth about some horrible experiences that he had in the next few years <laughs> that really changed him as a person. But a lot of things falling into place um, with that news. Though. That is a very young age to get a job with an awful lot of responsibility, and I really get the impression that Jeffrey's inner child got squashed pretty early. Yeah. Well, young man, you have been apprenticed to a fine company in London. Today, you become a man of business. I'm looking forward to it, Headmaster. Mm, you will love business. It is the American way. Now, honestly, that's about it. It's weird seeing, like, a lot of these previous Renaissance films, we have had one, at least one or two people that it feels like you can attribute a singular vision yeah. to, or a singular guiding hand to the film. Like, you really feel... Howard Ashman's influence on Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. And you can really feel some of the other really crea- real creatives on board there really like just driving this film forward. When you when get Lilo like- and Stitch, Chris Sanders is all over that movie. So oh, yeah, for sure. And, Dragon. and, uh, and yeah. Um, it's hard to feel anyone's unique fingerprints on this film so much. I mean, and it's, it's especially because, and maybe part of it is because a lot of Disney's top artists had no interest in working on it mm. yeah they were they were talk, talking about they say repeatedly in all of the extras um <clears throat> they got everyone in a room and they were talking about their two upcoming projects pocahontas and the lion king and pocahontas is gonna be this epic sweeping romance like a big broadway musical like uh but more like the miss saigon type the tragic romance and and uh, they were going to take the world by storm and everyone's going to fall in love with this and just be really swept up in it Effectively, they were mapping out what Titanic would be just a few years later. I mean, also, what Avatar was a few years later. What they really yeah. needed to do was give it to Cameron. <laughs> I mean, um, essentially, you look at Pocahontas on paper, and it sounds like a big, grand idea. Like, you can see why the artist would want to jump on that. Alan yeah. Menken's doing the music, and he's done the music for the last three super... Aladdin, I, mean, I guess there was, only the one out, there was only one out at that time, but still, there Little was... Mermaid, yeah. yeah, Little Mermaid, super successful, and he was do, doing great things. It's telling a big, kind of grand, sort of prestigious-feeling story. Like, it felt like if, if Beauty and the Beast is going to be nominated for an Oscar, this is going to be an, our next chance to get that, that nomination again, maybe even a win, that, that sort of thing. And it's with lots of human characters, and it's a historical yeah. story. You can see why a lot of artists would want to jump on that. Everyone's you look into at humans and musicals. and yeah. Oh, yeah. You look at The Lion King by comparison, which especially at that time was looking a lot rougher and a lot more kind of scattershot. And it seems like a stumble backwards back into the dogs and cats and mice. But yeah, it's another animal film, for one. It wasn't really kind of cohesively coming together at the time. And I mean, even if you look at the finished product, like The Lion King is sort of a testament to how a lot of weird or seemingly bad ideas can come together in a really awesome way. Like, okay, just on paper, you got a talking animal story, all right, based on a combination of Shakespeare's Hamlet and some biblical Moses Joseph stories. That's pretty cool. A story originally brainstormed by Disney executives. That's a bad sign. Mm Mm-hmm. It's about a pride of lions who are like voiced by James Earl Jones and Jeremy Irons and Matthew Broderick. That's pretty great. That's very great, except for it's, Matthew Broderick. It's all right. He does all right in the end. But I, 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 two out of three. Yeah. But songs by Elton John, that's a weird choice. Uh, score by Hans Zimmer, it, awesome. I, well, I guess he would have been less known he was then. But very less known then. Yeah, yeah. yeah but he had done like, Rain Man and Black Rain and all of anything, any film with the word rain in it, he was totally all over it. Yeah, and I believe he was brought on because of his 
past work on films set in Africa, like The Power of One, I think. The Power of One, which he he worked in collaboration with uh, Lebo M., who you know basically designed all of the uh, African music uh, in, in the film and was absolutely crucial to the tone there. So oh, Zimu yeah. bringing him on and them setting the tone for the music and then somehow that collaborating with these two very effete British men, um, <laughs> Elton John and Tim Rice. And how does that come together? I don't know. I mean, they, okay, you've got a bird who's voiced by Rowan Atkinson, because mm-hmm. why not? And there's also a meerkat voiced by Nathan Lane and a farting warthog that kind of take over halfway through the movie. That's a lot of weird ideas that on paper sounds terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And yet this is one of Disney's best films. This film works so extraordinarily well. And it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to see how you get from where the Lion King started out where no one wanted to jump on it. And there's really only like three of Disney's top animator, lead animator guys decided to jump on it and most everyone else moved on to Pocahontas and then there's a lot of other up-and-comers who took over a lot of the rest of the characters Andreas Deha who uh, had done uh, uh, Gaston before jumped onto Scar for villain duties and he's all over that character if you, oh, if yeah. you start once you start to get to know the way he animates he, he he's just he has a certain uh, what was style it? theatrical villainous flair but yeah, it just Lion King looked like the next B production, the next Rescuers Down Under, basically. There was no confidence in this movie on any level, either from the artists or the executives really like greenlighting it. Which there was usually also- there's at least somebody who believes in it. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, hang on, let me just check this one. There was also a, uh, a, 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 a tease several years afterwards with uh, um, Kimba the White Lion. Remember that one? This is a Japanese yeah. manga series created by Osamu Tezuka. Uh, the uh, plot is, in Africa during the mid-20th century, as mankind encroaches the white lion, Panji gives the jungle's wild animals a safe haven. Oh, da, 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 da. It's, there's, there's passing resemblances, but the fact that it was called Simba, which means lion in African, and Kimba, I mean, the, 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 the similarities exist because Kimba is called Kimba because of the word Simba in Africa. <laughs> It win, yeah. uh, I think is it Swahili the actual word for a line because African is not a language. Uh, I'm actually but, not sure what language it is. Yeah, but, but, but yeah. that would be where the correlation comes from. But there was a huge set to, and they were going to try and sue Disney, as many people have tried before, and some have been successful. Um, but uh, what was that you were saying, um, Sharon, the other day about one of the reasons Frozen is really, really successful is because it's a princess film with what did you? How did you describe it? Well. I think when um, the animators and the story uh, story artists particularly have been talking about what they think makes The Lion King successful, it keeps coming back to this idea of universal themes, that it's about loss and redemption and uh, and these are things that can be applicable to almost anybody. Uh, the princess stories have a tendency to be a little bit more personal and more about um, uh, individual relationships and, and connection with, you know, finding the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And while that is uh, a big and meaningful thing for a lot of people, it's not universal. There are a lot of people out there who haven't found the person that they want to spend the rest of their life with or don't particularly think there's going to be somebody that they want to spend the rest of their life with or they had somebody and they lost them and they don't necessarily want to be reminded of of that particular scenario. Um, But the 
uh, I think they started it with Tangled because they've, well, started it. There have been elements of it in other films as well. But Tangled, one of the big centrepieces is the mother-daughter relationship between Gothel and, and uh, Rapunzel. So that immediately elevates it beyond the simple, aha, my one true love. And with Frozen, they took that and re- went really big. It was the entire uh, centerpiece of the story was about Elsa's uh, redemption and her, her fear and what she'd been. Well, well, we'll go into all of that when we talk about Frozen. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, looking at themes that go beyond the simple uh, connection with another human being in a, in a romantic sense and putting that in context of a film that was going to be marketed as the next big Disney princess film that basically allowed them to use the traditional marketing techniques but hit the biggest, widest audience that they possibly could. It almost seems like the uh, the princess stuff came later when Frozen was first advertised. It, it seemed to be almost like kind of cashing in on the whole Ice Age thing. They were trying to make it seem more fun. We're talking about Frozen, but <laughs> uh, no, I, I I get what you mean, and the, it, it totally. If, the Lion King here is is definitely affected by. There's a lot of scorn, especially on the internet now, because everyone's very re- well read uh, with. Uh, straightforward hero with a thousand faces Joseph Campbell style stories uh, were, were you know showing the hero's journey and we've covered it uh, several dozen times already. Uh, but when you do that really really well and you weave in everything else as well to a, a very complete package, especially if you do it in short order, because if ultimately if you blow it out to a, you know, an enormous epic length. Sometimes it, it gets weighed down by all of the other things that you're hanging off this hero's journey side of it. But if it ultimately comes down to the boy has to step up into his father's shoes and take his place and restore balance, that's a story that if it's done well, people really grab hold of. I think what people mean when they say that they're, they're kind of bored with the whole hero's journey thing, it, it's when... And I have come back to this time and time again. There is a certain lazy style of writing that takes it as a template and doesn't really vary much off it, yeah. which, yes, that is dull and it doesn't really mean anything. When the characters are not fleshed out, when the, the uh, plot itself is, is relatively meaningless, as long as all of these boxes get ticked and they get ticked in the right order, then we're happy with that and that will do. But there is a reason why books have been written about the hero's journey and, and how that impacts on narrative. There's a reason why that is the core of myth and religion and folklore and history and all of the things that uh, whenever we look at, at narrative art, that is going to be a huge part of it. You can't get away from that because it, it's so resonant. But you're absolutely right. It has to be done with more than just here's the structure, follow the structure. But at the same time, if you go too far and you hang too much off it, then it, it becomes belaboured. And we've, we've seen a lot of films in, in recent history where it, it just becomes about you are the chosen one, it's your destiny, or um, you're special, you were born to do this. I think there's a lot... Well, it seems to me that there are a lot of uh, films and maybe games a little bit but less so at the moment that are looking at subverting that or maybe it's simply that they're the stories I like so they're the ones I seek out 
One of the things that uh, was mentioned on the commentary for this, uh, almost in a throwaway uh, style, this is by Roger Ellis and Rob Minkoff, um, they described the characters as, or sorry, the animators as acting through the characters, but they, they didn't really pursue this one. And then they mentioned that the vocals were also added as well. And it hadn't really hit me how much, from an animator's perspective, everything that is in that character, aside from the voice and what they uh, perf- uh, performance in the booth, informs to the animator, who ultimately has final say over what the, the character does. That is the animator themselves acting through their drawing. Totally. And, yeah, it's, it's just something people take for granted. And I've taken for granted, and I love animation. But, Dan, I mean, you're the expert on this one. Uh, how prevalent is this um, within animation circles? Uh, I mean, animators absolutely feel that way about their work, and that's why a little bit of some acting knowledge and a little bit of practice and experience can really go a long way because at the end of the day, you are having to make a character act, and the only way to be able to do that is if you understand it some- somewhat yourself. And animators kind of approach it from a weird and i mentioned this before but animators kind of approach it from a weird perspective i me and a bunch of other pixar canada guys were talking with some stage actors for a while kind of just discussing differing methods and there was a lot of overlap in the way we both kind of prepared character performance stuff but but the key fundamental difference it felt like was that a stage actor is at no point ever thinking about what they look like because they should never be kind of removing themselves from the experience at all they should just be feeling it and and just living it in the moment and because if they're stopped to actually they're going to just lose track of what they're doing and it's going to come out just feeling weaker and more kind of just staged and not just real but for us that as animators we have to basically look at like what an actor would do like what feels real what kind of captures that that captures that feeling of real emotion in the in the moment and sort of reverse engineer it to sort of create that moment in a character we basically we're looking at it from the outside as opposed to like making it well up from within like an actor would it's and it can be a little bit harder sometimes to see that in animation at times because sometimes you may have as with uh, little mermaid or beauty and the beast you may have actors who came in who kind of uh gave that sort of internal performance as uh, reference material and then the actors and then the animators can then use that and see that oh that worked really well or i would not have thought of doing that that's great and then use that to inform the performances that they uh that they create for these characters so it it can be hard to see in the final product sometimes who really is the actor making this character come alive but it really is a collaborative effort Okay, so let's start, because, well, we've been uh, 19 minutes so far, and we haven't even started with Natawenyan. Maybe the best beginning for a Disney film. Maybe the best beginning for a film. It doesn't get much more elemental than this. Hey, 
This was the site that greeted the earliest man as their brains went from ape to human being. This was what they saw every single day, the sun rising. It doesn't get more elemental than this, more fundamental to who we are as uh, people who are, exist on this planet. The sun rising. So I don't, 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 don't mean to um, um, attach more importance to this single frame than, uh, than required, but um, yeah. Do you want to start with the circle of life? That's it. Uh, it it's, this, this film is laden with symbolism. A lot of it, I'm sure, accidental. And a lot of it will just be inferring uh, without any actual um, uh, grounding. But again, some, some of the best uh, films with, with that much texture allow you to do that. We're going to be talking about the stage show uh, throughout this. Have you ever had the pleasure and the luck to be able to see this thing? I did see the stage show, but I was a good bit younger, so my memory of it is pretty fuzzy. Uh, now you're going to make us feel old. How, how old do you think you'd have been? <laughs> you saw uh, it? I, no, I probably would have been in my kind of mid-teens would be my guess. Okay. 
So it has been a while. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we saw it, I think it would have been well, coming on for nearly 10 years now, Sharon. Yeah? Bit, bit, bit earlier than that? Um, bit, bit later? Bit, bit later than that. We went to see it for my 30th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Not 10 years ago then. Two no. years? Oh, ago? hang on a minute. 30, 30th birthday, is that right? Are yeah. you sure? Yes. Yes, we saw A Few Good Men in the Afternoon. Mm-hmm. And Lion King in the And we also that, saw a play. Hang on a minute. Was that my... No, that wasn't my 30th, was it? No, I'm getting confused. We I went to know. see Rain Man for my 30th. Yes. With Josh Hartner. Yes. Not with Josh Hartner. We weren't sitting in the theatre next to Josh Hartner. More's the pity. You're completely derailing this whole thing. <laughs> All you have to do was say, yeah, about 10 years ago, for goodness Yeah, sake. about 10 years ago. Yeah, there you go. Um... Yeah, the the way the stage show opens up, they they give the role of Africa to the dancers and the singers. So they embody the grass, they embody the 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 the, the giraffes and elephants and everything that that takes part in this incredible um, journey to pride rock and the. the, the uh, celebration of the birth of Simba um, it's all moving about on stage and um, I, I heartily recommend it to everybody who, who can get there They set out to make it, um, I believe it's been referred to as a blockbuster with drawings. They do things which we now take for granted, like camera movements within the actual frame, as opposed to just everything being just sort of set there. They, um, they pull focus and move around. They tried to give a, a depth of field as if though there was an actual cinematic camera there. They went for the uh, effect of the cinematic direction of David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia, that level of uh, of prestige. They really shot for the sky on this one. It's almost like they were told, oh, this isn't going to be all that much. And they were like, right, not all that much, huh? And it made them really try. That's the most noticeable thing about Lion King, looking back for me. It's just its scale. This is the first Disney film that actually feels huge. The shots are really dynamic with a lot of that simulated depth of field and big, broad, sweeping movements. The scale of the environment and the landscapes just 
feels enormous. And then you've got and like Hans Zimmer's score on top of that with this thundering percussion and chorus. I mean, even when you're watching this on a little TV at home, the movie just feels grand and big, way more than any Disney film has before. The use of light and shadow. I've it's I've not seen the use of sun very rarely uh, since this film before sense in animation be quite so striking as it is in just little parts where when Rafiki uh, starts to approach the rock you first off see the top of his stuff and it shows you that he's small but people respect him because he's like Yoda and then he starts moving forwards and the sun's rays are pushing through his body it's wonderful it's not all the time but there's many many scenarios where there's uh, different tones on the bodies of the uh, the the lions and the other creatures then they're, they're not all just one solid color they did a lot of that in say the little mermaid this if you if you look back on that animation and then compare it to this there's a lot of um, a subtlety and shading in this which wasn't in that is that is that called tone mats I'm not 100 sure what they would have called it at that point I suspect it might have been some functionality that caps allowed them to have some work with with traditional color as well but uh but yeah it really feels like they're after a few films of using it that they are really getting their money's worth with caps in this film they use different colored uh, lines to actually uh, outline that the, the mains are not drawn with black outlines to give the they're drawn with red to to give them that much more sense of it's it's very bright and colorful but at the same time there's a, there's subtlety between the shades yeah the use of shadow on on um their their bodies gives more of a sense that they're actual three-dimensional beings rather than just flat and on the cell, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. This, I am impressed that it's hard to imagine any point looking at the Circle of Life sequence, which is just such a remarkable kickoff to the film. Mm. It is hard to imagine this film ever being viewed as a B film, yeah, it's, as, it's a B, as the B production, because it just feels enormous and important almost instantly just from this just from this sequence alone it feels very different from any disney it just sets the tone perfectly i think just to go back to what you said about them um aiming to make a, an animated blockbuster i don't think that's what they were really shooting for at that point but i think you are absolutely spot on about the the fact that they kept talking about this as the secondary picture and being told that it wasn't going to make all that much much money it it i think it attracted the people who felt like they had something to prove yeah. and were going to pull out all the stops to prove it bear in mind they had two groups to overcome here they had to be better than the original disney artists who they've been living for years under the shadow of of you know well, we're never going to get back to the heights of original disney and now suddenly they have to be better than little mermaid beauty and the beast aladdin they had to be better than what they'd just recently done in the studio. They had to be better than their teammates, and a lot of the time better than what their own previous work. It's a tall order. Just as a, a little uh, note regarding the actual Circle of Life moment, um, when Rafiki uh, meets young Simba, he anoints his head with earth, and then he cracks open that mango-type thing, um, and then uh, wipes uh, the juice on his head so that's water and then he goes and holds him up in the air above Pride Rock and then the sun comes down blessing him with fire all four elements could just be a coincidence but there you go considering it was me who spotted it and I tend to be a little bit obsessed with that theme that could be <laughs> inference however uh, later on uh, when uh, Mufasa um, approaches him 
if he didn't get the air on fire before, he gets uh, air in the form of an ethereal wind from uh, Mufasa, and Mufasa becomes the sun at that stage. So it's it's kind of a reprise of that moment, and suddenly he's an adult at that coming of age. Well, he's had the water from looking at the reflection in the water as well. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rafiki hits him with a stick. So, earth. Yeah, oh. which has those mangoes tied onto it, just <laughs> evoking, oh, we could do this all day. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, eventually everything's going to be made of one of those four things. Yes. Well, exactly. That's the significance that, every you know, from dust we come and unto dust we shall return. That's the stardust that everything is made of. When uh, Lebo M uh, heard about the the, the first uh, the, the premise of the Lion King, which originally, before he heard about it, was going to be lions versus baboons. It was going to be two massive armies just clawing the shit out of each other. And uh, thank the Lord that got adjusted to what eventually this it came of. But um, he heard about it and uh, and went away very thoughtful and wrote the lyrics to Circle of Life. And he summed up the whole film. They even tell you through despair and hope at the beginning, it's going to get dark, kids. They, they, they sort of they, they, they push it past you, and so you're like, oh, okay, well, I, I, I'm not sure if I really took that on board. And most people didn't expect quite how dark it would get. Um, this is the first genuinely notable Disney death since Bambi, really. Which, which they were riffing on. Yeah, which they were riffing on. And, uh, well, you know, to, riff, to go back to what I originally said about Bambi, um, it might actually have been a really effective film one year before The Lion King. As soon as The Lion King came out, oh my God, I can suddenly see the weaknesses in Bambi. Life's not fair, is it? You see, I, well, I shall never be king. <laughs> and you... Shall never see the light of another day. <laughs> and you. Didn't your mother ever tell you not to play with your food? What do you want? I'm here to announce that King Mufasa's on his way. So you'd better have a good excuse for missing the ceremony this morning. Now, look, Zazu, you've made me lose my lunch. Ha! You'll lose more than that when the king gets through with you. He's as mad as a hippo with a hernia. Ooh, I quiver with fear. Now, Scar, don't look at me that way. Help! Scar. <laughs> Drop him. Impeccable timing, Your Majesty. Why, if it isn't my big brother descending from on high to mingle with the commoners? Sarabi and I didn't see you at the presentation of Simba. That was today? Oh, I feel simply awful. <laughs> Must have slipped my mind. Yes, well, as slippery as your mind is, as the king's brother, you should have been first in line. Well, I was first in line until the little hairball was born. That hairball is my son and your future king. Oh, I shall practice my curtsy. Don't turn your back on me, Scar. Oh, no, Mufasa. Perhaps you shouldn't turn your back on me. Is that a challenge? Temper, temper. I wouldn't dream of challenging you. Pity. Why not? Well, as far as brains go, I got the lion's share, but when it comes to brute strength... I'm afraid I'm at the shallow end of the gene pool. 
there's one in every family, sire. Two in mine, actually. And they always manage to ruin special occasions. Oh, what am I going to do with him? He'd make a very handsome throw rug. Sazu. And just think, whenever he gets dirty, you could take him out and beat him. Cut to Scar, played by Jeremy Irons. Half Iago, half Claudius, all bastard. That's Iago from Othello, not from Aladdin. And I suppose it'd also be half Claudius from Ham- sorry, from Hamlet. With his, I only noticed this yesterday, envious green eyes. And at this point, I really do have to make a shout out for the Blu-ray. If you don't already own the Blu-ray of The Lion King and you have the ability to play Blu-rays, get The Lion King. It is absolutely astonishing in HD. There are not a lot of Disney villains that operate mostly through manipulation that I recall. And and those that do are often some of the most interesting, I think. Gothel. Yeah. Uh, He's very Lady Tremaine, somewhat. Yeah. Uh, H- Hades does a lot of that as well. Yeah. Jafar. Scar is very reminiscent of Jafar for me. I think a lot of that is uh, Andreas Dejar's animation. Yeah, he did Jafar uh, as well. Because he, he did Jafar as well. But th- there's a point in the film where I think it's towards the very end when the um, the earthquake's starting to open up cracks in the ground and there's obviously something volcanic underneath because they get this great um, swathe of red light that just bathes Scar in red. Mm. And it just made me think that is Jafar. That's the, the turn where he now goes total evil. Um, you know, full 100%. There's no hiding anymore. It is now out in the open that he is bad guy. Scar's the imbalance. Ultimately, he shouldn't be there. The fact that he's voiced by Jeremy Irons and he's surrounded by people with, you know, great big fantastic African voices like Madge Sinclair playing Sarabi and James L. Jones playing uh, Mufasa. And he's this, again, effete British man. Uh, he just seems wrong for the the area and uh, the scar on his eye which is never referred to he's called scar but you can work out from that that he and mufasa fought and uh, there's some you know his uh, his story is on his face he's wiry and slinks around and sulks and talks to himself and soliloquizes the claws come into play over and over again he's got these sheathed claws and then they come out and he sort of you know he taps them around in a kind of a fun way in a, in a sort of you know you know it's almost like he's playing with a knife while you're looking at him and you know the moment that you turn your back it's going to be in your back the best way to 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 show what sort of person he is put him up against zazu someone comical someone uh, just as a feat in british who sort of makes it sort of legitimizes him being there Technically, Mufasa being the the head of the herd should have run Scar out of town years ago, yet it appears he's let him stay. He's on the fringes, though, um, which kind of fits with the idea of um, male lions that aren't the the pride leader being kind of forced into exile when they get to a certain age because yeah, basically no if they're not the pride leader there's no use for them yeah. so what do they spend most of their uh, lives just wandering the savannah looking for another pride of lions they can muscle in on and it's possible if they find an older uh, alpha male that they can they can beat him in combat and then take over that pride um, from what I've read, and it was a while ago, so I could be a little bit off base with this, I think what they tend to do is um, they, yes, they roam um, alone a lot. They try and kind of cut off um, edge lionesses until they've gathered enough lionesses to make their own pride. Yeah. Um, uh, fight going up against a, um, a an existing pride male 
is probably a little bit less common because normally that pride male will be toppled by a, a young male cub from his own pride at yeah. some point. Um, so, yeah, usually it's a case of, of kind of getting their own pride Scheming. together. Yeah. <laughs> so all of yes. the elements that were there for Scar already in Rogue Lines. I suppose so, yeah. There's something wonderfully... Uh, just misconstrued about the whole the lion as a creature. This is sort of you know, he's, he's this wonderful noble king. Look, if you look into real male lions, they're just lazy gits uh, exploiting all the female lions. You just go oh, get me some food, and then when I feel like it, I'll shag you. You say that, but if you look at the setup, right? They're basically seed stock. That is effectively what they keep the male lions around. Oh, you mean snoo snoo? Well, indeed. <laughs> you know, it's like they're, they're, they're doing the, the bulk, the lion's share, if you will, of the work. Um, but, um, you know, sadly, a, a pack of females can only keep itself going for so long. It's almost their pet. Yeah. Like they keep maybe him around so. like sort of, yeah, he'll protect us. They are. They don't directly protect, though. They have yeah, the, the lioness do the fighting as well. It's well, the very loud growls. What that does is, uh, or the the big roars that the male lions are capable of, basically advertises to the wider world what their territory is. So if you could hear another male lion roaring, this bit's taken. That is effectively what it comes down to. But it's like cats. They don't really tend to fight. They will do anything that they can to avoid it. <laughs> Hence the so, fact that like, male lions with these enormous manes which have evolved over time to make them big and scary looking without actually doing much. Indeed, yes. Again, I'd, if anybody has is more aware of lion biology and sociology than I am, which I'm sure there are many people listening to this who are um feel free to correct me if i've got any of that particularly wrong i find scar kind of interesting because for being the sort of intelligent sort of shakespearean scheming villain of this story he his concept of what being king means is around the same level as young simba's is when he when mufasa first starts teaching him. Like, yes to, no that sc- struck me exactly no, to i'm on a being king, and everyone's gonna do what i say yeah being king means getting your way all the time can we go one week without alarming parallels with the trump administration i mean how many disney films do we have to see as a culture to learn what a villain manifestly is a cartoon villain it actually ruling is an inconvenience for him if anything he knows how to manipulate everyone very well to get to what what he wants to have and where he wants to be but he really does not have anything planned for what to do when he gets there other than just lay around enjoying Which is what being he king. was doing before he was just laying around miserable that he wasn't king he yeah, now he just gets... gets to lay around in the big cave room <laughs> Yeah, well, indeed. But he even gets the hyenas to do all his dirty work. He's got the, the lionesses just carry on doing what they were doing before. It's just that now they've got to hunt for three times the mouths. Which imbalances um, the entire place. Exactly. Um, the hyenas are there to do any uh, sort of grunt work or, or murderousness that, that is required. And yeah, he's he just thinks this is him getting to tell everybody what to do and they will all do what he says it's almost as if that talk that Mufasa has with Simba about what being king actually constitutes and what the responsibility is I want to make sure you don't turn out like him 
Well, I mean, I love him. He's my brother, but he's a wrong one. Nobody's ever had this conversation with Scar. Now, is that because their father only had this conversation with Mufasa? Is it that Mufasa himself never had any conversations with Scar around this subject? Because if so, that seems like a bit of a failing on their part. And Mufasa obviously was never going to have the talk with Scar. Whatever, whenever they, if they did fight at some point in in the past, Scar must have feigned fealty, and I accept my place. Then simply slunk around the place, making thinly veiled threats for several years. Yeah, which Mufasa was possibly a little bit too good-hearted, stroke stupid to realize i say were... naive rather than stupid he's okay, not a stupid sorry. character but i think he's not he doesn't believe scar is capable of uh, committing the appalling acts he he does yeah it's possible that when scar attempt if if scar attempted some kind of insurrection it was very much in a uh, you know around about the time their father died maybe and okay. uh, you know well maybe i should be king i i have all the brains after all and then he paid the iron price <laughs> okay, so uh, this is the time when they uh, show Africa off as a world. It's almost fantastical in the way it's portrayed. It's so exotically um, uh, succulent. Would that be a word? Just it, Everything's just lush and lavish and, and, and so beautifully coloured. It just makes you fall in love with the place. It's... Um, and it, it shows you the natural order of things. You know, you've got the rain and the sun and it's, it shows time passing as things should be. gives you a very clear idea of what well, what balance looks like in this world yeah. as a wonderful contrast for later once Simba comes back to see what it turns into with that balance broken the entire the entire pride lands reflects it's the new leadership yeah uh, there's actually there was a bit in the uh, around the morning report area where uh, Mufasa was going to be telling him about eating the antelope and then shout out to an antelope far away. Hey, catch you later. And it's <laughs> not if I can help it. Uh, big yucks, and thank Christ they took that out. <laughs> um, but it seems uh, like a bit that would go in a lot of animated films today. Yeah, it's it's almost like you have to you have to pick the ones who are going to be doing the jokey jokes. Mufasa, no. Timon and Pumbaa, yes. Scar somewhere in the middle. But even that, no, with Scar, it's a different kind of humor. Again, there's this wonderful blend. It's not always the same humor across the board. And yet, here's the interesting thing. They don't just put in Timon and Pumbaa to make the kids laugh. And they don't just put in Scar to make the adults laugh. It's a sort of a wonderful kind of balance the whole way through, wherein there's stuff for kids and adults to like, because it's all part of their characterization as well. I mean, you may not necessarily like fart jokes, but this is probably the the, the best I've, the, the most I've laughed at fart jokes. Pardon <laughs> <laughs> that family guy where Stewie tries too hard, goes ah, burst a bloody vessel, and his eye goes red. <laughs> well, that it's the same thing as I was going to say about this. It's character specific. It's not just haha a funny noise. It's how that relates to the character. We're talking about disassembling comedy. This is podcasting death. Very true. 
Okay. We cut... One of the things that Michael Eisner, once again proving his worth, mentioned after one of the initial screenings was, uh, I like the character of Rafiki. I want to see more of him. We don't really get enough of him in the movie. So they inserted three scenes, which all linked together. One of Rafiki celebrating the birth of Simba and sort of drawing him on the wall. And one of Rafiki mourning Simba when Simba's uh, died and he scrapes away the uh, paint to just to push it off the wall but he never really completely cleans that wall off it's like a scar a wound which he just sort of leaves there and then when Simba comes back and he redecorates it with a mane and it's just this sort of wonderful joyful resurrection moment and just those three little interstitials there's a wholeness to them which informs entirely on his private character because he behaves completely differently when he's around Simba I think Rafiki might be one of my favorite Yoda-type characters yeah. in anything. He is great. He's played by Robert Guillermo, and uh, fans of video games may remember him in Half-Life 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he plays Professor Vance. Cut to Mufasa being woken up by a young Simba, played by Jonathan Taylor Thomas from Home Improvement. Did, was it you or my sister who used to have a crush on little Jonathan Taylor Thomas? Must have been. I so he's too young. I sincerely hope it wasn't me. He's way too young for me. Yeah. Okay. No. It was. It was her. But uh, yeah. Um, this this little white kid sired by James L. Jones. Okay. Fair enough. And then, interestingly enough, um, Nikita Kalemi, who uh, plays uh, young Nala, her mother was from L.A. Her father was from Jamaica, and then grows up into white as a sheet. Moira Kelly <laughs> playing older Nala. <laughs> And of course, um, uh, Simba himself, played by. I'm trying to think of the whitest possible thing in the world. You, you can just say his Matthew name. Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, <laughs> whitest guy in the world, playing the King of Africa. It seems odd, doesn't it? Like, like, Cooper Gooding Jr. wasn't available. Or even better, because he hadn't yet appeared in Amistad in 1997, a young Jaman Hounsu. But I digress. Young Simba comes in to wake up uh, Mufasa. And uh, he uh, teaches him about the circle of life, and it's a wonderful uh, moment, principally because James L. Jones has the best voice in the world. I mean, it's up there with Morgan Freeman, and James L. Jones just about edges him out. Uh, who else is up there as well? Keith David again. Well, these just wonderful, big, grand black guys who have these incredible voices that I wish I could possibly have. Idris Elba. Idris Elba again. Oh, yeah. <sighs> So, yeah, James L. Jones. I think the first really, truly significant role for him after Darth Vader uh, for the kids. Um, and he's if he wasn't immortalized with Darth Vader already, and he was, he's double immortalized with Mufasa here. Look, Simba, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Wow. A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. One day, Simba, the sun will set on my time here and will rise with you as the new king. And this will all be mine? Everything. Everything the light touches. What about that shadowy place? That's beyond our borders. You must never go there, Simba. But I thought a king can do whatever he wants. Oh, there's more to being king than getting your way all the time. There's more? <laughs> Simba... Everything you see exists together in a delicate balance 
As king, you need to understand that balance and respect all the creatures, from the crawling ant to the leaping antelope. Dad, don't we eat the antelope? Yes, Simba, but let me explain. When we die, our bodies become the grass, and the antelope eat the grass. And so, we are all connected in the great circle of life. If you basically want to dredge up every everybody who's watching this is daddy issues, you bring in that character of Mufasa, that sort of stern but well-meaning and uh, noble and idealized. I mean, he's so ideal. You literally couldn't get more wonderful than this. And you never really get to see any of Mufasa's weaknesses aside from naivety regarding Scar. Uh, you, you, you reduce everyone in the audience to a little child when Simba stood in his father's footprint. It's, it's incredibly wonderful, incredibly elemental, and I'd say a big chunk of the power of this film comes simply from that casting choice, the way that Mufasa is animated and the, um, the, the way he is portrayed, and the, the whole the multi-person project that eventually became Mufasa. Yeah, I think for me, it, the end of this scene when uh, Simba jumps on him and pulls his ear and they roll over and start playing mm. and you've got that wonderfully bittersweet music playing over it. it j- I, I cry every time. I can't help it. Yeah, he is such a powerful, like, lovable presence in the first third or half of this movie that, and, and they in establishing him as that such a wonderful presence to have around and one that like makes you feel safe and makes and just makes this world feel significantly better because you know he is in charge of it a fixed point it, he's aslan it, he is then too it makes it all the more heart-wrenching and scary just with simba being kind of our character that we're following around when he is removed from it yeah Interestingly enough, have you ever seen the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? I barely remember it. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it's a John Landis comedy with, uh, starring Eddie Murphy as a, a spoiled African prince who comes to uh, New York to seek a bride because he doesn't just want to be married off to some prearranged princess. He wants to find a real uh, woman. And um, it, it's, it's a neat, fun film. His mom, He's an African prince. He's, he's basically T'Challa. His mum and dad are James L. Jones and Madge Sinclair. Your Majesty! What are you doing here? I received your telegram. What is Akeem? He went out. So how is your flight comfortable, I trust? Your only job was to look after Akeem. How could you let him come to such a pass? Akeem will not listen to me. He's gone quite mad, Your Majesty. Sammy, you have disgraced yourself and you must be punished. You will confine yourself to our royal suite at the Waldorf Astoria. And see that he puts on some decent attire. And I want you to bathe him thoroughly. Oh, thank you, Your Majesty. Wow. Now, this is a film that came out before The Lion King. I'm fairly certain they just watched that and went, right, them, they will do as, <laughs> as parents. Probably. Yeah, it's brilliant. Although uh, the good King Jaffe Jaffa is a lot less perfect than uh, Mufasa in terms of the fact that he basically, as soon as he finds out his son's going off to this, he's like, ah, you want to sow your royal oats, I see. And immediately he's like, yeah, I'm going to help my son go off on a, sh- a-, a-, a poontang cruise. <laughs> <laughs>
that's the circle of life speech. We're actually a little bit earlier than what you uh, mentioned, uh, Shan. We haven't quite moved on to the stars bit yet. I just oh, jumped sorry. forwards to the yes, bit with the footprint. He's still just prior to the morning report. Um, interestingly enough, and I use that term correctly here, <laughs> the morning report song was inserted into the 10 year anniversary platinum edition DVD version in a way that you actually have to be just very carefully work your way through the uh, backstage side of that DVD number one to get to the original theatrical version. They don't let you choose at the beginning. They almost hide the fact that you can have both versions of it. They just, you gotta watch the morning report. It was created years after the original film because it was this scene was put into the stage show and people liked it. So they were like, right, let's just do that again. Same as with Human Again from Beauty and the Beast. It's pretty seamless. There's actually a sort of a eh, pause as it changes layer on the disc to, uh, to, re- to, to seamlessly branch in and out of that scene, either version that you watch. Uh, what do you guys think of the morning report? It's all right. <laughs> I think the, the, the comedy of that moment, I quite liked the fact that it came in all of these stupid animal puns that Rowan Atkinson was delivering in the his impeccable British accent. The buzz from the bees is that the leopards are in a bit of a spot. Yeah, the I mean, I... The baboons are going ape. I told the elephants to forget about it, but they, they can't. can't. I always found that quite chuckle-worthy, but the fact that you're not really supposed to be listening to that, you're supposed to be paying attention to uh, Mufasa and Simba having Stay their, their bonding the moment. Um, I, I just, when they did the version with the song, I thought that's amusing, but it doesn't really need to be there. Yeah. So fortunately, they ex- excised it completely from the uh, uh, Blu-ray, and you get the original theatrical version. I wish, though, that like with The Beauty and the Beast, they gave you uh, just an ability at the beginning of the film to choose which one you're going to watch. Because they've got that for Beauty and the Beast with, if you want to see Human again. And frankly, why wouldn't you? It's an honour and a privilege, a duty I perform with due sense of decorum and with pride. With deference and great respect, very much the norm, plus a hint of sycophancy on the side. To lay before my ruler all the facts about his realm, to fill him in on all the beastly news. Yes, yes, Zazu, get on with it. In order that his majesty stands sturdy at the helm, aware of all the fauna's latest views. Zazu, (laughs) the morning report. Yes, sire, the morning report. Chips are going ape, giraffes remain above it all Elephants remember, though just what I can't recall Crocodiles are snapping up fresh offers from the banks Showed interest in my nest egg, but I quickly said No thanks, we haven't paid the hornbills And the vultures have a hunch Not everyone invited will be coming back from lunch (laughs) This is the morning report Gives you the long and the short Every grunt, roar and snort Not a tale I distort On the morning report What are you doing, son? Pouncy. Ah, let an old pro show you how it's done. 
The buffalo have got a Stay beef about this season's grass. Warthogs have been caught in attempts to save their gas. Yes, Flamingos in the pink and chasing secretary Not birds. Saffron is the season's colour seen in all the herds. Moving Take down the slow. rank and file to near the bottom One rung. Far too many beetles are quite frankly in the dung. Pounce! This is the morning report. Gives you the long and the short. There's another song in Pocahontas which they've also excised for the uh, Blu-ray and was put back in. It was it was put into the DVD version and then taken back out again for the uh, Blu-ray. I really wish had been left back in there. Is it if I never knew you? Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 It's I, I missed that one. But morning report. Eh. It is <laughs> the fact that you can't remove it. Like the only thing it adds is some comedy. It has yeah. very little to do with anything going on other than hey we're. It it feels very musical, uh, that sort of musical thing of hey, let's have a song here. Yeah. Let, what can we make it about? What's happening? Well, the bird is giving the morning report. Good, make a song. <laughs> Remember what Ashman said about you? If you take him out of the film, it shouldn't make sense. Yeah. Exactly. Morning report. Taking the morning report out and just making it a few little puns that are being spoken off to the side while the while Simba's about to pounce him. Mm. Like you, you do not need that song in that movie at all. Yes. So, yeah, uh, the uh, Rufasa races off. Simba goes to visit his uncle Scar, who's in shadow. Uh, throughout most of this entire scene, Simba's in sunlight, Scar's in shadow. When uh, Rafiki uh, decorates the uh, initial Simba image on the wall, he puts a little streak of sunlight onto his head to show that the sun is smiling down upon this new prince. And, yeah, Scar's in shadow because he is not blessed, because he has chosen to put himself in this dark area. It seems he's always lurking on kind of that shadowed back end of the uh, of Pride Rock in general. I like the fact that uh, when you first meet him, he, he knocks a skull off the uh, the rock angrily, almost like he could have picked it up and gone, "Alas, poor Yorick," and actually done the Shakespeare thing, but he's like, "I ain't doing that for nobody." Later on, there's a little uh, reference to that when uh, uh, when Zazu's singing, "I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts," he does a little boom 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 with a skull on his hand. Just kind of a little nod to Shakespeare, specifically Hamlet at that point. That's true. Knocking the skull off the rock does, it does feel like this tiny little moment that's kind of disposable, but it just feels very character. Yeah. It's, it's such a nice little thing that you don't always get in yeah. animation, but it does just feel almost comical. It's it's like, a, well, look it, at this It has a bit, of a, petty, a bit of a pettiness to him, just kind of a, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, not say off the... <laughs> Such a mess. It wouldn't be a mess if I was king. That's, that's I'm assuming, what his angry knocking off thing was. I would have people to clean it up. Of course you would, Scar. <laughs> and yet then we, uh, after the, one of my favorite lines in this whole thing, you're so weird. You have no idea. I feel like that was like a little reference to the fact that Jeremy Irons had been in a bunch of freaky movies with David Cronenberg and things like that, where he gets to like murder his own twin. Isn't that, I mean, isn't the you have no idea actually a line straight from one of those movies? I feel like I heard that it was. Maybe so, actually. 
but yeah, even so, even even in a meta sense, it does work very well as a yeah. sort of ah, little. We know who's performing this character. Yes, the depths to which I will sink. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so, it's a wonderful moment, and that 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 way he acts in this whole thing. Oh damn, I've said too much, and the overly theatrical performance, and you know, uh, the the delivery of his lines, absolutely, just like you know, top ten villains of all time, really. Can you imagine how insufferable Simba must be mm. as a character to Scar? As I love the part where Scar just kind of flops down. Just that, that forgive me for not leaping for joy back right back. back you know, it just flops down. It's like, Ugh. I just <laughs> I, suddenly thought of this. There's a lot of Scar in Loki. There is actually. Yeah. Yeah. If you look back at comic book Loki from the 60s, he's completely different. But you look, you know, there, there's a, yes, a little Scar's worked his way in there. Uh, but I think what, that, that's one of the things I really liked about uh, uh, Loki. He twists the Scar thing around. He really, I mean, he might kill Thor, but he does love his brother as well. You never really get that about Scar. You never get that he loves Mufasa or that he's at all conflicted. He's just basically wait, waiting for his moment. Although it almost seems like he doesn't really think that moment's ever going to come. He's just, you know, mooching around, feeling sorry for himself and feeling he's the one with the fatal indecision. Yeah. And whenever he is put in a position where he's made a, uh, made a choice and he's uh, moving through with something, the second it looks like it's going to go wrong, he backtracks. Yeah. He's the one mooching around wearing black all the time. Simba's partying in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yeah, we, we, uh, we cut to yeah, young Nala, who's got this, this wonderful little kind of like head bobby. There's one point where she goes, it better not be someplace dumb. And she's got a little, little head bob going on there. She's... Uh, how best to put this this could have been really creepy the whole arranged marriage between children thing but because they've got so much personality and and they they really don't want to just get married to each other that kind of takes the creep out of it although I had to smile at the line I can't marry her she's my best friend yeah (laughs) it sometimes works out you know (laughs) occasionally sometimes pretty well also, I think I, I could be wrong, but I think we noticed um, now that we're looking out for it. Josh's girlfriend's uncle. uncle. What's his name? Back James, James Baxter? Baxter. Yeah, I think he was in one of the meetings. He, he worked is on this. The lead uh, animator on Rafiki. Ah, oh, yes. Okay. Um, so shout out to James Baxter. James Baxter via Josh <laughs> <laughs> and his lovely lady. Um, right, Zazu. And the I Just Can't Wait to Be King party song. Again, Zazu's really only there to bring the officiousness uh, and the sort of, you know, this is what must be done as the king, it, you know, the pomposity of it, to just sort of break that in the kind of way that um, that Sebastian is there to break up the, um, you know, the aerials. Oh, I just so want to be a human. It's almost like... Um, Zazu's there to be a party pooper just to say, yeah, but there is this other thing you've got to do as a king and it sucks. Because it's boring and, and it's, you know, you've, you've got a lot of responsibility and you can't just have fun and it won't be fun. And it's uh, it's from a child's point of view. It's something that, you know, Zazu is, is a, a source of ridicule. And and, uh, and thus, uh, as with Scar, Scar could have been really quite sinister, but you put him up against Zazu at the beginning and suddenly you get a lot out of him from that. Yeah, if Mufasa was telling them the things Zazu is, then they would pay attention and listen. But it's just Zazu. Yeah. <laughs> 
Who cares? Oh, not Zazu. <laughs> <laughs> he's the one without any authority who's just bossy. Yeah, he's Captain Bringdown. He's all, there's a, quite a bit of C-3PO in there as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, dear. Sorry about that. Sh- sh- this is going to be off the record, but I had a dream last night that Sharon used to be C-3PO and then <laughs> was chased into a woman. I don't think that's a reflection on you, Sharon. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I, I can see certain robotic might be a elements reflection on me. in the past. It, it might well be. <laughs> Could be telling you you watch too much Star Wars. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning without a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. So, yeah, well, that you, sounds like me. I just can't wait to be king, the party song. This is the Be Our Guest or the Under the Sea of the Lion King. That This yeah. is the kind of, you know, come to Dis- a Disney film, you won't go home empty-hearted. The kind of, you know, it's just a, a laugh. Right. Also, with Aladdin, it's the um, Prince Ali and uh, you got um, <laughs> you got a friend in me. You ain't never had a friend <laughs> like me um, uh, song. It's the, uh, I think this song used to annoy me because it was much more kiddie. Now I relish it. I think it's the visuals that sell this one, really. Yeah. The way they tie in with um, uh, the, the lyrics, the the colours, everything becomes very much more vivid. Uh, it's all not necessarily primary colours, but these vivid... It's not pink, it's fuchsia. It's not yeah. green, it's turquoise. You know, everything is incredibly bright. All these jewel tones, blocky patterns on everything. Um, you've got, you know, waters done in um, incredibly bright lime greens with uh, aqua marine zigzags on it and the giraffes are all painted like batik um uh wax prints and it, it just everything is so it pops and it really smacks you in the eyes who was the artist who uh that was the woman who came up with a lot of the uh, backgrounds for peter pan and alice in wonderland oh yeah she ended up with her art um being in up yeah, it feels very much like that just for this song only, just because it's time to have some fun. The backgrounds and the world of Africa goes from being this very beautiful, naturalistic looking Africa to just for a little while, just cutting to looking as if she had made all the backgrounds, being a really stylized, kind of crazy, almost alien feeling, uh, just super colorful, bright, just fun environment. So it's a wonderful little number. Yeah. You know bit when all the crocodiles open their mouths and the, it, their mouths are full of birds, a little bit of dark humor there. <laughs> That's actually relating to the Egyptian plover, which um, famously and entirely erroneously is supposed to clean the teeth of crocodiles. They, uh, apparently, but it uh, doesn't really. Uh, allegedly, the crocodiles, the crocodiles lie on the shore with their mouths open and the plovers fly into the crocodiles' mouths so as to feed on bits of decaying meat that are lodged between the crocodiles' teeth. That sounds like something that's like, wow... It's a symbiotic relationship. That doesn't sound true, but it must be true because nature's just that crazy. It's not true. <laughs> There's no evidence of this cleaning symbiosis anywhere. And anybody attempting to make an Egyptian plover clean a crocodile's teeth ends up minus one Egyptian plover, possibly minus a hand. <laughs> okay. It, uh, didn't we um, we establish, though, that this whole uh, having it in all these bright colours, it's, it's transferring the whole scene to Simba's point of view. Yeah. It's this, this very childish way of looking at things. Yeah. Um, he sees everything as massively simplistic. It's all there for his entertainment. Um, all of these animals are basically singing and dancing for him, and that's how he perceives his kingship will be 
the monkeys are there throwing them around the place, hearkening back to the jungle, but which this film does many times, I might add. Mm. Um, uh, in a good way, in a way that sort of evokes the jungle book without actually uh, going, hey, folks, we're desperate for that. It's almost like Tarzan tries to evoke this and the Jungle Book a little bit too hard. I love Tarzan, but I can see how people would perceive it as, as Disney attempting to do a Lion King again and Jungle Book. I also note that the Mega Drive game of this was rock hard, and specifically the uh, I just can't wait to be king level, because it was all yes. water and you had to be flung all over the place. Stupid tails that you're supposed to grab and flip off of yep. and the monkeys that throw you random directions. Yeah. It was a hard game. Yeah. It was one of those um, uh, platform games thrown together very, very quickly with uh, assets just, you know, um, copied from Disney's uh, production archive so that it could come out with the uh, movie. Like, you know, probably thrown together in a few months. And and so it just had this, like, if you don't do exactly what the game wants you to do, and often there's no indication of what that something is, you just fall out of the screen and die. Simba was very vulnerable in that game. You could just die. But, I mean, the Aladdin game, as I recall, the uh, the Mega Drive one, and the SNES one as well, I enjoyed those both immensely. Those are great, yeah.
the elephant graveyard, another myth completely dispelled by actual uh, uh, um, documentarians trying to find out if this thing is the case or not. Um, this comes, I believe it, it relates to the fact that elephants bury their dead under leaves or that they, they at least treat their dead with respect rather than just eating bits of them and wandering off. I believe apes also do something that, that apes mind a lot when one of their number dies. Just looking at what the movie backgrounds and environment seems to suggest, elephants mostly just throw their dead down a cliff. Heave! <laughs> 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 Not a lot of burying happening. Oh, just okay. pushed over a cliff, did Don't he? leave them near the waterhole, they'll attract flies. Is that what it comes down to? <laughs> but I love the mythology of the elephant graveyard. There was an old oh, episode yeah. of Super Ted. Did that ever reach America, Dan? Uh, if it did, I would not know. <laughs> Before your time, maybe, where uh, they went to an elephant graveyard. And just the idea that elephants would all wander at the end of their life to this one preordained spot that nobody knew about, a secret place, and then just lay down and accept their fate and die uh, amongst the bones of their ancestors. That's a wonderful, romantic, sad image. Completely untrue, but it's very evocative. I love the idea. There was a dragon graveyard in Dungeons & Dragons, wasn't there, Sharon? There was, Where dragons do exactly the same thing, and that happens to be the layer of Tiamat. Tiamat, yes. Yeah. Wander in there at your peril. Oh, incidentally... Transformers reference the other series in which Frank Welker gets to fight Peter Cullen. Oh yeah, because <laughs> he played Venger and Frank Welker did Tiamat's voice. So here is where we uh, we get to see Simba showboating for Nala and not being massively impressive, and then we meet Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed, played by Whoopi Goldberg, Cheech Marin, returning from Oliver and Company, and Jim Cummings, who at that time was completely unknown and is now vaguely less unknown. <laughs> this uh, Ed, the laughing one, who's otherwise basically dopey in hyena form, uh, is uh, Ray from The Princess and the Frog. And every other voice you've probably heard in yeah. something. Jim Cummings <laughs> has done a ton of stuff. Yeah, he's, he's a lot of Disney characters. Uh, Pete... Uh, that, go- that kind of goofy is an antagonist. Oh, Tigger. Yeah. Oh, he's endless voices. I think he's, he might be Winnie the Pooh now as well. Yes, yes, he is. Because he does a great Sterling Holloway. Yeah, he's great. I mean, to, a testament to his skill. If And we'll, I guess we'll get there later. But when you listen to the song, Be Prepared, everything after the line, and uh, you won't get a sniff without me, is Jim Cummings taking over for Jeremy Irons, and you cannot tell. Seriously? So I'm prepared like, for the chance of a yep. lifetime. Yep, uh, Jeremy Irons blew his voice out. Jim's Cummings came in and finished it. You I can't tell at all. Voice out. So, but no, prepare for the coup of the century. Be prepared for the murkiest scam. Like, if you really listen, you can kind of hear, like, ah, oh, that sort of sounds like Jim Cummings, but that really sounds like Jeremy Irons, too. I don't know, because, I mean, like, basically, once someone starts singing, they may, they often sound very different. I mean, when. I'm assuming Matthew Broderick doesn't do his own singing, or does does No, I don't believe so. There you go, then. But people, as standard in Disney films, don't necessarily do their own singing parts, especially not in this one. Very true. But then having had one who was doing the singing part, and then having the other person take over halfway and convince you that they're still being the other person. If you've actually got a one-to-one example of this is what sounds like Jeremy Irons sings, he sounds like Jeremy Irons singing. Wow, that guy's... Jim Cummings is... Yeah, he is one of the greatest alive okay I hope this somehow reaches him if 
you know Jim Cummings, make sure he listens to this one. Tell him he's awesome. Yeah. Small little side note, Nala's little line that pins you again. I don't know, like, it may just be because of my age, but there are a lot of girls who are my age who are watching this movie who that is a line that, like, they have grown up with just as being one of their favorites in the world. Including my wife. I can see why. (laughs) Yeah. You say including my wife and then trail off as if thinking that. Okay. Wasn't where I was going with it, but... Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Lucky Dan. Anyway, (laughs) but yeah, the uh, the, uh, elephant graveyard scenario plays out. Whoopi Goldberg, great fun, as is Cheech Marin. Uh, They're well cast. Uh, Obviously, since we've been doing all the research, you guys will know who was going to originally play some of these hyenas. Uh, At one point, they were looking for Chong to reunite the Cheech and Chong combination. But then at another point, there were... But Chong won't work with Cheech. <laughs> what is the world coming to? And then another point, Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella both nice. attempted it to uh, audition for it as well, but they were so funny together they got cast as Timon and Pooba exactly instead. Exactly right. Yeah. The um, I, I can't imagine them them being hyenas now. It seems like they were just like they'd be hyenas and then they take off these horrible costumes. The not sinister people. I guess Cheech Merritt isn't that sinister either, but I have a hard time imagining. Nathan Lane voicing a scary hyena. Yeah. Or Ernie Sabella. Well, maybe Ernie could do it. I don't know. I, could, I only hear Pumba when I think Ernie Sabella. Who does Simba slash? Is it uh, Shenzi? Yeah, with the Shenzi, yeah. yeah. So when she when she growls and doesn't say anything after that, it's, that's actually quite threatening. That's like, that is, these yeah. guys might be in real trouble now. Yeah, it's a mean look and not actually saying anything. Just an animal growl. That's scary. Yeah. But again, this is mitigated by some great humor beforehand. You got some puns. The, the whole laughing sort of thing, they're, they're a bit the Joker, or the Joker's a bit hyena, if that makes Joker sense. The Joker is very hyena in yeah. terms of the, not necessarily how hyenas actually are in the wild, but how hyenas are often interpreted in um, uh, in anthropomorphic stories. Yeah. They, they are of all the animals i would say the hyena is the one that i most associate with being vicious and unnecessarily sadistic and i'm sure they're not really without scar it would have been very easy to see a very jokerish possibly a very um like chief blue meanie-ish chief hyena if they were going up against the lions but then enter mufasa the hyenas are seen off and uh, simba has to have the talk which uh, again is one of those uh uh, you know, harkening back to what I said before, that that moment where you um, you're told by a parent, "I'm I'm not angry with you. I'm disappointed." Um, if it's a good parent and they can convey that talk in a way that actually does end in laughter, then that's um, that they've they've done a good job there. If the if the message has sunk in, um, but we can all relate to basically that that walk. Apparently, in Japan, the um, Zazu saying Simba. Good luck. That drew huge laughter because in Japan, that's a cultural thing. They say that to people who are going to have the talk with their father. Or their boss. Or their boss. Or both. Mm. In the terms of Miyazaki's son. <laughs> you have ashamed of me. That I is will close the yeah, company. I was say. <laughs> <laughs> that, is that racist? Because that that's literally what he said. I know, but that is a bit. <laughs> With your inferior animation, 
There is no future for this company. I'm in an existential malaise regarding that right now, folks. I'm sorry. I'll cut this out of the show. But if you're listening, I was going to say, you're leaving. Enjoy my racism. (laughs) That was during a period in 2014 when it looked like Studio Ghibli might be closing its doors with the retirement of uh, Miyazaki. We are to date still waiting for their next film. Okay, so uh. <laughs> let's claw our way back. <laughs> what other animals do you like? Stop it! I like the lion. I'm just, I just, I've just saw Godzilla the other day, and uh, um, Ken Watanabe has got this yeah. fantastic voice, and then let them fight. Anyway, he's awesome. Yeah, he should be in animation. We need his voice. He surely must have done. Can we like just pause for a second? Yeah. For that. Because surely he's animated, he's voiced some animated character before. He has too great a voice to have not done that. Known for the last rust of samurai, Inception, Batman Begins, and Letters from Iwo Jima. Oh, he was he was drift in Transformers: Age of Extinction. Brilliant. Oh. He was Goldface. There you go. Well, that ended much sadder than I hoped it would. <laughs> It's not an animated film, but he provided voice duties. Yeah. Interesting, he played oh. Ra's al Ghul in Batman Begins. Surely that should be in, in speech marks. Ra's al Ghul. Anyway, sorry about that, folks. We'll get back on track. Simba! Simba, I'm very disappointed in you. I know. You could have been killed. You deliberately disobeyed me. And what's worse, you put Nala in danger. I was just trying to be brave like you. I'm only brave when I have to be. Simba, being brave doesn't mean you go looking for trouble. But you're not scared of anything. I was today. You were? Yes. I thought I might lose you. Oh, I guess even kings get scared, huh? Mm-hmm. But you know what? What? I think those hyenas were even scared. Because <laughs> nobody messes with your dad. Come here, you. Oh, no, no. Come here. right <laughs> right and we'll always be together right Simba let me tell you something that my father told me look at the stars the great kings of the past look down on us from those stars really yes so whenever you feel alone just remember that those kings will always be there to guide you and so will I. Okay, so in the stage show, during this scene when uh, they're looking up at the stars and Mufas is telling them about, uh, telling Simba about the great kings of the past, 
they brought in a new song. It's called uh, They Live In You, and it's reprised later with uh, He Lives In You because uh, Rafiki takes it up. It's wonderful. They open The Lion King 2 with this, and I, I'm not sure which version I like the best because they, they're both done extremely well. Um, I'm going to play you the, the one from the stage show now because it's it's got this wonderful sense of portent, but at the same time things being all right with the world. It's It's just shivers. Now, Be Prepared, which follows immediately after this one, is the secret Howard Ashman-style song. As in, that it's so full of clever puns that it may as well have been written by Ashman. The spirit of Ashman is alive in this one. Yeah. Now, this obviously must have hit them as a huge blow because after um, this is the first uh, film they had to do without Ashman at all because he contributed some songs towards uh, Aladdin. So this was a... Like I said, the, the the Tim Rice, Elton John that's being pulled out of nowhere after no prior collaboration with Disney. And what had Tim Rice done before this? Uh, well, he'd helped with Aladdin, obviously, but... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so, that was... yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. El- Elton John hadn't, but Tim Rice had. 
Yeah, but really, this is the first Disney musical, arguably since Fox and the Hound, and even that one only had a couple of songs with no involvement from Mencken or Ashman at all yeah. in any way. That's like a... How many years had that been? It had been at least 15, 20. So, yeah, good on Tim Rice and, and Elton John for not tripping and falling on this because they... They've made it clear that you do not necessarily need those two for a Disney musical to work. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> Tim Rice wrote the lyrics for the, the weakest James Bond song of all time, All Time High from Octopussy. There's none weaker. It's the lamest of Bond songs. from that one uh, we, yeah he came out back with Aladdin and you're absolutely right yeah he really hadn't done anything massively important he worked in TV before then he done, did things like uh, Top of the Pops Children in Need a lot of British stuff the Benny Hill show um, but yeah he went on to have an incredible career after that so uh, yeah The Lion King was a huge deal I mean you, we know The Lion King was a huge deal obviously Elton John had done a ton of stuff before this and um, if, if you folks at home haven't really ever gotten into the Elton John uh, uh, back catalogue, get yourself a best of CD and just listen to some of his greats because he's a, he's a master. While I prefer the film versions to the ones sung by him, um, b- being able to get his, his, his music through them, it, there's, a, there's so much heart in it. Yeah, absolutely. And Zimmer does a great job of maintaining that, like, he converts it into something that feels like the Lion King and fits in with this big score that he's done and feels very African, but the core of those songs isn't sacrificed at all. Yeah. Apparently ABBA was one of, was also considered early on to be collaborating with Tim Rice on the uh, songs for the Lion King, which sounds bad, but that if you just told me ABBA or Elton John, I don't know if I, I don't know which one would have sounded theoretically Plus. weirder. I think Katzenberg would have suggested ABBA. Dude loves disco. We found this out today. Um, Do you know the bit with the luau and the the little uh, Polynesian number that uh, Pumbaa and Timon do? What do you want me to do? Dress the dragon to the hula? Luau! If you're hungry for a hunk of fat and juicy meat, eat my buddy Pumbaa here because the end is reek. Coming down a dine, on a Stacey swine, all you have to do is get in line. Ah, you ain't it. Yup, yup, yup. Oh, some bacon. Yup, yup, yup. 
They knew I, they couldn't just say this is what Timon and Pimba do. This is um, uh, uh, Alas and, and Minkoff. This is Roger Alas and Rob Minkoff. They knew it wouldn't work just on paper. They, they, they basically got a guy to play the ukulele. They got a guy to immediately start thumping on some water bottles so that they would have backup. And then when they were pitching this in the storyboarding meetings, they actually launched into it and sang it and did the yup, yup bit. And Katzenberg sat in his chair and went, nah, this isn't going to work, guys. Do staying alive. Right. I knew this cracks was going to. fingers. <laughs> <laughs> cracks knuckles. Cracks hands. Cracks legs. Okay. Um, Dan, have uh, you've been listening to the podcast. Have I ever ranted about the my disco thing in, <laughs> in animated films? Specifically computer animated films? It's come up. And let's just reprise it in case I've mentioned it before. There's this thing that seems to happen in CG animated films starting around about 2001 and stretching all the way up to about maybe 2012 because they seem to have stopped now, thank the Lord. Where for a quick cheap gag, they'll get a disco bit in. It'll just last for five seconds or so and like all of the characters will suddenly burst into like a disco dance. They'll point at the ceiling, they'll point at the floor like... Uh, John Travolta does in Saturday Night Fever a film none of the audience will have seen as in none of the children will have seen and a lot of the grown-ups won't even have seen it now by the by, by today's standards the children won't even have heard of Saturday Night Fever they'll know what disco is just about and they do this sort of like do, 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 do. a lot of the time it's sort of coordinated and loads of characters do it at once my theory is and Dan you might be able to confirm or disconfirm this one that if you program in a series of disco movements for like a, a skeleton you can get a whole room full to do it using CG animation which you couldn't do with uh, cell animation would that be correct? it would depend on the film and the tech they were using a lot of the time for like a game that would be something that it game would probably set up a lot of the time because it's very useful to be able to have animations kind of shared across very similar rigs or skeletons for cg characters a lot of them are built very differently so you probably couldn't share it directly you probably just have to hand to do it how many animators have wasted their time doing this disco gag then in how many films next time folks you're watching a not massively funny CG film from that period I just mentioned watch out for the disco gag because there is an alarming regularity to them and they're always accompanied by that glittery disco ball to the point where when it happens in the film I log it on my little book of hate and I go right 12 minutes 16 seconds in disco gag it seems like they've stopped doing it now it seems that the attempt was and I mean it's one of many there are a lot of cliched humour type gags that animation will that animate that animated films will often resort to and it kind of changes with the eras but uh i suspect the reason that that is usually the way it goes is because they're wanting to have some sort of little dance moment or party gag or something like that and they're trying to think of what is what's a dance that looks funny or goofy or weird or silly and there's not a whole lot of them that do look sillier and weirder than 
traditional disco. It's 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 kind of that mingled with I think just a bit of reference humor for something which is not. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, well, that all these like kind of comedy trope things are to a degree resorting to a laziness unless you can find a really clever original way to use it. Yeah. But because I mean, there's okay. So like another animation uh, common trope, some sort of funny thing happens that startles or confuses the villain or some other character and we see them staring at it silently and they have an eye twitch on one side very super cliched animation acting move which sometimes can still be really funny if you do it if you do it just right but it's a very but like animators or someone says something weird to a person that goes and it cuts to somebody looking Garfield like sort of "Mm," like that yeah yeah Yeah, there's it's gags that are easier to do in animation and can be done very well but they can also be very tropey and cliche I I'm talking don't. like over the hedge era, like around about the mid 2000s. There was just this explosion of DreamWorks style animated squawking, flailing animals. Around about the time we started podcasting, interestingly enough, and just every single one of them somehow got in a disco gag. But we just found out today because fucking Katzenberg mentioned it during this bit. It's you, you and your DreamWorks. You're the one who did this. <laughs> You're the one who got everyone to start doing disco gags, aren't you? You! It does seem like he must have been the... It does seem very telling, because it's hard to figure out exactly where it came from. Like, okay, so it's a it's a reference, but it is one... Like, Saturday Night Fever is not something that no, a lot of people are going to be familiar with anymore. Airplane do that bit in Saturday Night Fever, but they commit to the gag. They do it for a good four minutes. It's a whole setup. They get everyone in costume... It's like a whole thing going, wasn't this film a little bit crazy and silly and let's make it even crazier and sillier. They do that, that's done, that's it. The sketch is done, now let us never mention Saturday Night Fever again because Airplane have done it and put it to bed. And it took years for that to really come back, but then suddenly it was everywhere. And it's only ever for a few seconds, they never commit to it, it's just a bit. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, gl- I am kind of, gl- like, I, I'm not really just as in on principle bothered by them as much as you are there are a lot of cliche, there are a lot of uh, cliche comic gags that animation films will go to that uh bother me just as much but i, I am glad that it, i'm seeing a bit less of it yeah uh, seriously and um, the animation is genuinely improving from from what we've seen recently just i mean the fact that dreamworks have upped their game to the point where they've been better than uh, with how to train your dragon that's better than a lot of pixar and a lot of disney it's Incredible. Kung Fu Panda 1 and 2, both incredible. Shrek 4, specifically, is an incredible film. I still need to watch that one. Oh my god, you've never seen Shrek 4? I did sort of, like, to be fair, <laughs> but with the Shrek franchise, really did seem to have a predictable arc after a certain point of it quality. It bottomed the hell out. I think That's Shrek 4 might specifically speak to me more than a lot of other people, but uh, uh, yeah, that... Um, there's some. It's a real return to form, and actually, it's the best of the uh, the five if you count Puss in Boots, which is also really good. Although as good as Shrek Four is, does have a disco gag. But yeah, no, I, I'm I'm at least ha- very happy that it seems to be sort of taking an upturn from just Madagascar, which set the tone. Shark Tale. Oh god, I hate Shark Tale. What's that one with the fish? Is it just Shark uh, Tale? The one with Will Smith as a fish. Yeah, I think that's it. That's just Shark Tale. Yeah, that's Ice Age. Two, three, four, five. We're so off point, but like DreamWorks seems to still be kind of in a weird like they'll release whatever. Like they'll have they've got their one or two films that they're. I mean, they've got a few films that are like going for being better, but they still are constantly releasing Madagascar's and releasing another Penguins of Madagascar, which I'm sure will be plenty will be really funny. 
but <laughs> I don't they I don't know they they're a very mixed bag DreamWorks yeah. even though they have been like they've been starting to release some really great stuff but there's no consistency to it it's just every now and then they will release something great it seems like we're off point but it's actually really on point because Katzenberg left shortly after this didn't he it was the uh, the death of uh, Frank Wells Frank Wells did it he wanted to get Frank Wells job and they gave it to or they just didn't give it to him yeah they they uh, it, it's uh, they they divided Frank Wells' job amongst other people or something like that. So uh, Katzenberg threw a hissy fit, left, and went and formed DreamWorks with Spielberg. Uh, maybe not ever immediately, but basically uh, within a few years, uh, Ants was in the works. And uh, what was the first one that they actually ever did? The Prince of Egypt was one of theirs as well, wasn't it? I think so. I think Road to El Dorado was something DreamWorks did as well. That was after the Prince of Egypt. And oh, that's they, right. they dallied with um, to sell animation and then, then realized after Shrek and Madagascar that that was where their big bucks lay. Yeah. It's interesting watching these films uh, and the um, the extras on them and, and seeing Katzenberg slinking around in the background. It's re- Obviously, I can't possibly make any real judgments on the guy. He just seems like a pantomime villain, and he's spoke of, spoken of in these hushed tones to the point where I even kind of have grown wa- warmer about Peter Schneider as a result. One thing I can... I've said this one before. I can thoroughly recommend watching all the watching these films and the extras sequentially because you get a much better just sort of historical picture of Disney as a company and the people behind it. There is a tendency within our society to just point a finger and go, Disney did that. Disney. Not the people there who are a, a fairly frequently changing team with some regular people who stay stuck around for many years and some people who just sort of came in and out. A lot of people put, make, putting a lot of hard work into it. And at the end of the day, it's a thankless task because people point their finger and go, Disney did that. Disney made this decision. They made that decision. Almost like Disney just press a button and this bunch of animators who have no real say in the matter just go, oh, you want a lion? There's a lion. And it's, I'll press the penguin button and then I'll press the dance button and then I'll be finished. <laughs> it's a terrible injustice. These people yeah. work as hard as Weta, and we go on and on about Weta in the Lord of the Rings podcasts. But we didn't really know about it because there really wasn't that much in the way of extras available until fairly recently. In the two thousands, they it's started an invisible job dots. for sure, uh, yeah. all, for the most part. But uh, in a way, but that, but that's also kind of how you succeed in a way when it's very clear that it feels like a cohesive body of work and not just a hodgepodge of lots of people's efforts. We can't go backstage. That's where the magic happens. <laughs> no, no. These people need to be credited. So, back to be prepared. There was an alarming amount of communist imagery in this song. <laughs> the dancing about... The, 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 I mean, it's, it's a combination of Nazi and communist imagery um, and, and the rhetoric that they're spouting. There's a, a, a famous symbolic shot of Scar turning his head against the crescent moon and it's the goddamn hammer and sickle. I hadn't even picked up on that. I wonder if there's a screenshot. <laughs> Type in communist Lion King. Oh my god, you're right. Oh, interesting. Why is Obama in the second row of pictures? Of course he is. Come on, folks. Oh, yeah, I see it oh, now. Jesus. I don't know why I didn't notice that before. I mean, that's so beautifully symbolic that if they didn't notice that while they were filming it, 
Well, what was it while they were filming it? <laughs> they were just there on location. There was a cartoon line. Hey, Jeremy, on. put your head down. You look like a. Jeremy Arnes was in a costume. Imagery. When Simba slumps down and all of that, um, the uh, uh, the leaves sort of blow out uh, from under him uh, and uh, are washed away by the breeze towards Rafiki later on. Uh, apparently, it says the word "sex" on the sky for a fraction of a second. It says the word SFX because it was the special effects animation team putting their little signature snuck in there. Like, and hey, they we didn't did this. think that people might think that that was sex and there's actually a bit at the bottom which makes it look more like an E than an F. Yeah, they probably should have taken a little more care to oh, that straight bit, of, <laughs> straight bit of grass, seeds and flowers. Okay. So it wasn't just uh, an alarming coincidence or uh, an animator going, ho, 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 I'm going to make the Lion King controversial. Or, um, as I recall, the original poster of The Little Mermaid had to be recalled because of the top pinnacle of the underwater tower, which looked almost exactly like a thingy. Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) Sorry, tell I've got a British sense of humour, can't you? He likes this, yes, because it looks like like a thingy. A very big thingy. Well, now, what was I saying? Oh, my God. (laughs) Turn it, my lady. (laughs) That's a Blackadder joke for all you British people. I think we've mentioned Blackadder before to you, uh, Dan. Uh, yeah, I, I was aware of it existing, though I've never seen it. Okay. It's, it's good. We can recommend Anyway, back on point to The Lion King. We're never going to be done in two hours. We're an hour and a half already. I never thought hyenas essential. Are as wet as a warthog's backside, but thick as you are, pay attention. My words are a matter of pride. It's clear from your vacant expression. The lights are not all on upstairs. But we are talking kings and successions. Even you can't be caught unawares. So prepare for the chance of a lifetime Be prepared for sensational news A shining new era is tiptoeing nearer And where do we feature? Just listen to teacher I know it sounds sordid But you'll be rewarded When at last I am given my dues And injustice deliciously square Be Again. Yay! Oh, I love the king. 
The Stampede and the Death of Mufasa. This is um, one of those uh, uh, scenes which would not have been anywhere near as impactful without Caps. Yeah, Caps and the just kind of growing use of 3D in their 2D films. Because if, I mean, I have to look pretty closely to see, but it did look like the vast majority of those Wildebeest and most of the shots are 3D and cel-shaded. Yeah. But I was talking about scale and scope before, just this whole sequence of the stampede is really incredible as an achievement. And if you think about it, they couldn't really do this before on camera. They, the closest thing they came with uh, was the original Jurassic Park, uh, just a few, like one year beforehand, when uh, Alan and Lex and Tim are stuck in the middle of that Gallimima stampede. Um, and that lasts for about th- three seconds and then comes to no end. It's just a bit of spectacle. This is key to the plot because you can't actually get in within the middle of a, 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 a horde of rampaging wildebeest. Your cameraman dies. They, they'd always have to be from slightly above if they're actually going to make wildebeest stampede. It, it always has to be. But you're right in the thick of it with this one. So this is it's revolutionary. The other thing about it is that they had to basically handle each individual wildebeest using a computer program, which basically said because they would otherwise walk through each other because they didn't have they didn't acknowledge each other as solid objects. They had to be basically designed to avoid each other. And if you look at the very basic, you know, red dots avoiding blue dots, that eventually expanded into Weta's massive system, which they uh, turned into the, the, the computer program that allowed giant CG battles to take place with thousands of agents fighting other agents in um, procedurally generated movements. Yeah, it's a much more primitive version of it, really just a sort of run this way and don't run into each other. And yeah. that's about the extent of the AI, which, I mean, it's a wildebeest, so... <laughs> It's the extent of the brain, too. But it's, but yeah, like it's a very, very early version of that sort of thing in The Lion King, which is really cool. And it gathers as well. There's this one, the fact that it just, first off, you see Lyra noticed this. The valley, you know, there's, there's sun going across it, but at the far end, there's shadows gathering, showing the darkness that's about to encroach on them. Nice. We have trained her well. And, um, there's the, the, it's very, very quiet, and Scar's chatting with Simba and being pally with him, manipulates him into the roar. I'm not sure if Scar knew that Simba would believe it was his roaring that caused the stampede, 
But if he did, that's incredibly calculating. But yeah, the, it starts with the quiet and the expanse, and you can almost feel the heat at this moment when Simba's sort of, you know, scrabbling around in the dust playing. And he's just obviously at this point very isolated and you can you that the, the little echo of his roar shows how small and alone and insignificant he is and then the wildebeest come in it's astonishingly good and to make it even better or even more powerful it turns out to be an absolutely pivotal scene with the death of a key character in a way that i'm sure scarred many children for life in the right way. Because how you, do you... How do you scar someone in the right way? I don't know. It scarred me for life, and I adore this scene. There are good scars you can get. Things that linger with you, and you can feel the hurt, but that you grow as a result of them. I mean, there have not been very many like, out-and-out deaths where we, and where we especially see a dead character as well in Disney yeah. films up to this point. It's the first but, Disney film where they really deal with that death. They don't just move on. Yeah, correct. They re- yeah, they really do. And and end of a like a beloved character too, not of a villain or a side character, or as just as a motivation or anything like that. It's just uh, and having it be a death that is sudden and then done is also like there's no dying words. There's nothing else. It's just very suddenly Mufasa is gone. And there's kind of a shock to it, and sort of a it. There's something about dying words that lets the lets you kind of come around to the death and sort of accept it almost as it is happening in cinema. Mm. That uh, allows you to just like, okay, this character is dying. This is the death scene. I can start preparing myself for this. But when a character is just gone and dies, a corpse. It doesn't. Yeah, and just a corpse, and the characters have to deal with it, and work, and you're. You're spent, you spend a little while kind of wondering, is he actually dead or yeah, is, I mean, is this really going to happen? Naturally, you're expecting him to sort of open his eyes and go, I'm not really dead. And then, like, well, we've got to see to this scar. Because that's what happens in most movies when, when someone is... It's Baloo, you know. Is, yeah. Bal- is Baloo actually dead? No, he opens his eyes and everything's great. So they, they, they went back to Bambi, they went back to the Jungle Book and went, no, 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 let's just do this and do this properly. And this was the key to the story because up until this point, they didn't really have a reason for Simba to go away for so long and then to come back. His father was going to die, but it's the fact that Scar then meddles with his mind and says, it's your fault that really hurts Simba and twists him up. And it, that's a, a twist which needs to be untwisted bodily by, uh, by Rafiki years from now. I, want, I wonder how much screen time there is between kind of first seeing Mufasa on the ground when the, when the kind of dirt starts to fade mm. and Scar finally appearing because they give a lot of time yeah. to Simba discovering him and going through various stages of trying to process it and deal with it and not knowing what to do yeah. that's all they'd spend a very long time like com- compared to anything they've done before or maybe even since dealing with like showing our main character trying to cope and figure out this death yeah it's really remarkable the more i look back at it and he just ends up like crawling under his father's massive paw and just trying to shut out this and just curl up and just pretend that his father's sleeping because he just doesn't know what else to do 
I think that's the point that it really started to set in for the kids. So that it's like, no, no, because no, at this point he'd really have, he should have woken up by now. And then when Skull comes out of the mist and the dust, and this is the time when he's supposed to be supportive and okay, right, I'll take care of you, Simba. And even if he's going to be manipulative, doesn't want the boy to die. He's like, nah, get him out of the way. And uh, just the the, the cold. The, first off, the coldness of the, of the manipulation and the. <gasps> What would your mother think? And then the after he tells him to run away, that's not enough either. Kill him. That just completely cutting off of himself. Then he becomes a plain dealing villain. But again, this was um, this was what the point that it complicates the story in the best way possible. Because all it would have taken would have been, you killed my father, I'm gonna, da, 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 da. I've got to get away right now, but I will come back for my revenge. Conan, basically. The fact that the person who killed Conan's father was James Earl Jones is an irony not lost on me. But instead, it makes it far more psychological. And, and it's, he's the first Disney character to go through therapy. I think it emphasises that uh, that choice, having Simba have no idea what Scar is doing. Yeah. Um, it emphasises how young he is and how inexperienced in the world he is. And it makes you realise how hard this journey is going to be for him. Yeah. And again, with this, this perfect pacing, the chase reestablishes both tension and then fun. It's like, okay, that was incredibly serious and heavy, guys. We kind of need to give you a bit of relief at this point. So you're now going to be scared for Simba, but then laughing at the hyena with spikes in his butt because it's impossible not to at that point. It's it's the it's the single like couple of frames of like they all cr- like the hyenas rammed together and it's like one, two, three. Oh, that was one too many. And then Banzai gets flung into the uh, briar patch. It's it's that moment of um, tic tac toe that suddenly it brings it back to being fun again, which allows you to then warm to Timon and Pumbaa because if they suddenly turned up and started acting like uh, you know clowns without that and if it was just Simba wandering away then they would seem ten times as obnoxious as they actually end up yeah this is a good transition little scene here I don't know what it is there is something about rhythmic comedy that is can be all the more funny (laughs) yeah just adding a little bit of rhythm to it and then Scar rubs in our loss by setting the tone for the new pride uh, by just sort of dictating the terms to the lionesses, bringing in the hyenas, and you're like, oh god, this is all gone to hell. So that, that you really don't need to see much of a transition, so that when it's all dank and dingy later on, it makes perfect sense and you don't question it. You just think to yourself, well, Scar has said about a major change. If he just said, right, I'm the new king. It, you'd start to wonder to yourself, why has the land suddenly gone to hell? But it, 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 he can't be that bad at organising things. But because he brings in the hyenas, it completely unbalances everything. He's messing with the circle. He's changing it around so that the hyenas don't have to hunt anymore. And ultimately, from the sounds of it, in nature, lions scavenge from hyenas often as well. They don't. Uh, it, it's not always that they're just scavengers trying to pick at what the lions kill. That hyenas are actually extremely accomplished pack hunters, like velociraptors. So Scar's taking that away from them and going, nah, you know what, you may be hungry, let the lionesses do it. And that screws the whole thing. And then 
Rather than going to Sarabi, rather than going to Nala, who would be absolutely distraught at this point, you go to Rafiki, because he is much more of an overview of things. And you see how sad and quiet and alone he is, and he's not going to oppose Scar, he's just going to be on his own. And then that sort of that brush across of Simba, it's kind of the, um, the, the closing out of that stage of Simba's life at that point. Yeah, since Rafiki is not going to assist or advise Scar in any way, yeah. but he does have that—he does have that larger view of knowing that of what Scar of what Scar coming in and bringing the hyenas in is going to mean. This it, feels he, more. He knows how bad this is going to get. This feels more like Merlin and Arthur than the Sword and the Stone. Yeah, <laughs> weird that. <laughs> Gets them every time. <laughs> Uh-oh. Hey, Timon, you better come look. I think it's still alive. Alrighty, what do we got here? Jeez, it's a lion. Run, Pooba, move it. Hey, Timon, it's just a little lion. Look at him. He's so cute and all alone. Can we keep him? Pumper, are you nuts? You're talking about a lion. Lions eat guys like us. But he's so little. He's gonna get bigger. Maybe he'll be on our side. <laughs> uh, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Maybe he'll be... Hey, I've got it. What if he's on our side? You know, having a lion around might not be such a bad idea. So we're keeping him? <laughs> of course. Who's the brains in this outfit? Uh... My point exactly. Jeez, I'm fried. Let's get out of here and find some shade. You okay, kid? I guess so. You nearly died. I saved you. Well, uh, Pumba, help. A little. Thanks for your help. Hey, where you going? Nowhere. Gee, he looks blue. I'd say brownish gold. No, no, no. I mean, he's depressed. Oh. Kid, what's eating you? Nothing. He's at the top of the food chain. <laughs> the food chain! <laughs> so, where you from? Who cares? I can't go back. Ah, you're an outcast. That's great. So are we. What'd you do, kid? Something terrible, but I don't want to talk about it. Good. We don't want to hear about it. Come on, Timon. Anything we can do? Not unless you can change the past. You know, kid, in times like this, my buddy Timon here says you gotta put your behind in your past. No, no, uh, no. I mean... Amateur, lie down before you hurt yourself. It's you gotta put your past behind you. Look, kid, bad things happen, and you can't do anything about it, right? Right. Wrong! When the world turns its back on you, you turn your back on the world. Well, that's not what I was taught. Then maybe you need a new lesson. Repeat after me. <laughs> so we enter Timon and Pumbaa. Now, originally the vultures were going to be kind of a, hey, we got a meal here, boys, in a, a kind of like comedy vulture thing. But then when Timon and Pumbaa came along and it was like they were also funny, it wouldn't. It would sort of take away the thunder. So they made them just poachers. Yeah, Nathan Lane and Elisa Bella. I'm not sure whether, as a kid, I should have liked these guys. 
you know, because I think I, I was a little bit beyond fart jokes at 14, just. <laughs> it could just be that the song, I mean, I think if, if they just sort of came in and they were like, hey, where, where are these guys? We eat insects. And if they'd maybe had, like, did, you, did you see the original song of this one? It's the Warthog Rhapsody. It's a little lame and it's a little kind of straightforward and basic. And we like to eat bugs. Somehow Hakuna Matata, it, it kind of like sweeps you up in it. And it, because you know it's just what Simba needs at that point, it's also what you need at that point because you've just seen Mufasa. So you, re- you start to warm to Timon and Pumbaa in just the right way at exactly the right time. So they are kind of... That's true. I, I, I have been trying to think a lot yesterday watching it again. Like, why is it that these two characters that on paper should be really obnoxious and just killing the like impact of this big, dramatic, hmm. larger story? Like the why, two moose in Brother Bear who are just there to be funny. Right. I mean, like, I know they're filling in as sort of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this Hamlet story, and <laughs> they're very much functioning as the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead versions where they're just sort of meta-level and funny and goofy, but... Especially in Lion King 3, I might add. Which I... Should I see that? Yeah! Okay. Lion King 2 is worth seeing. Lion King 3 is worth seeing. Neither of them are even the tiniest patch on the original Lion King. Sure, as I would expect. But, but they're okay. not atrocities like um, I'd imagine some of the, uh, I, the... The Jungle Book sequel was just so dull. Oof. Yeah, but they are... Because they are these two idiots that Simba gets kind of caught up with that bring him out of his just depression and just his and give him kind of a a place to retreat to, which is great and fun. And yeah, you got to eat bugs, but at least it's nice. And mm. I'm, I'm not going to die out here. And, th- and this is, this is exactly what I needed to cheer up. And it's what the audience needs to cheer up. They do functionally work very well. And they, and they aren't so strong, a goofy comedic influence that they suck all the drama out of the end of the film where you need it to come back. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, they can be serious at times as well, especially Pumba, because he knows when they're, uh, it's the time to draw the line. They they play off each other very well. They're not just the same character. They've um, uh, they, there's a little bit of Midnight Cowboy in there. I think I mentioned that one before with Dumbo and uh, uh, Timothy the Mouse. Timothy, there's a lot of Timothy in Timon. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, but also, I mean, there's there's a, a long tradition of uh, the little sharp one and the big jolly, not so bright one. Uh, Asterix and Obelix, anybody? Princess Thieves fans, Robin and Oberon, based on Asterix and Obelix, based on the fox and bear Robin Hood and Little John. But then I subverted the trope and gave Oberon so much more to think about. And Pumbaa has the sincerity, too. Like, he's the one who knows when, like, all right, Timon, stop joking. Be, yeah. like, sincere. Can we help you? <laughs> like, are you okay? I'm the brains. He's the heart. The heart burn more like. Am I right, people? He's... <laughs> the... There's something very Billy Crystal. That there's a lot of Yiddish idioms in um, uh, Timon uh, with the whole carnivores. Oi. It's... It's really hard not to like seeing the two of them go back and forth, especially seeing them disagree. However, seeing it done in not such a uh, compelling way, say Lion King uh, 2, they argue over which bugs are best crunchy or creamy ones, and it's just a little bit tiresome. So I can see how in 
just not quite the right way, these guys could have been tiresome. Uh, maybe it's just that Hakuna Matata feels authentic as well. It's um, it's it's a Swahili word, isn't it? So it's I like don't know the exact language, but yeah, it is a actual word that uh, while in Kenya, the uh, yeah the team kind of picked up and learned. So it's like, sit down, kids. We're going to educate you about Africa, and um, it, it stuck. That was something that people. I mean, you could say Hakuna Matata to pretty much anyone in the world now, and you have like a one in like eight in ten chance that they go, ah, oh, Hakuna Matata. Or just, yeah, Lion King or something like that. <laughs> Everyone's heard that. It's like Superman now. And that's another thing that we haven't really mentioned. This is the first film where they went all out on the, uh, the multi-language, multinational uh, release. They went just every language they possibly could. The actual um, the Zulu version, this was like a last-minute thing. One of the guys went to uh, a, a town in Kenya and started just like recruiting, like, uh, we need a little kid to play Simba, we need a little kid to play Nala, and just like bringing in the locals to do uh, these characters and sing for them in Zulu. And it, if you listen to it, it really feels authentic hearing it. I'm going to watch The Lion King all in Zulu with British subtitles. Mulan! Simba! Simba Banda! Iba no mo sa ngagtelin pala na! Aupfanele wa nupila! Simba! Na! Nampele! Namuamdeni! Gantinche! Zimpi! Sampele! Ezizitazeli! Waba iputa! Ngagtabolazo! Bungan ngmelenkole logui! Yonkingtoaishogimingamanga. I suppose this feels more authentically African than Pocahontas feels authentically Native American. The Disney has not done, to, that I can recall of what we've watched so far, anything that has felt authentically anything. Yeah. Up until this point, they've had <laughs> sort of a setting and they've captured some of the beauty of that setting. And they've had one character per film that has the accent of that setting. But oh, I am French. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, they've had maybe one or two characters in Aladdin who may sort of have an accent. They. Uh, who else do we have looking back? Let's not look back. I've taken enough time. <laughs> they, oh, they rescue us down under. They have like w- like Cody's mom. Maybe, or like one or two people in there who yes. kind of have an accent. Like the kangaroo has an accent. And again, remember, a, a good half of the cast are white. Uh, so it's not a complete and utter all African uh, cast, but they make a lot of inroads into that. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata. Ain't no person craze. It means no worries. Why, 
when he was a young warthog. When I was a young warthog. Very nice. Thanks. He found his aroma like a certain appeal. He could clear the savannah after every meal. I'm a sensitive soul, though I seem thick-skinned. And it hurt that my friends never stood downwind. And oh, the shame! He was a shame! What a change in my name! Oh, what's in a name? And I got downhearted. How did you feel? Every time that I... Hey, Pumper, not in front of the kids. Oh, sorry. Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata, ain't no passing praise. It means no worries for the rest of your days. Yes, see it, kid. It's our problem free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. Um, there's another thing about Ernie Sabella being there. Uh, he's Sancho in um, uh, the uh, Man of La Mancha, the musical. Uh, he also played Sancho in the Man of La Mancha musical episode of Quantum Leap. So he's about as Sancho as it gets. If you know the Don Quixote story, the idea of Pumba being Timon's Sancho seems really appropriate. If you don't, this will all be gobbledygook. Not that Timon is in any way close to Don Quixote himself. No. No. But uh, the idea of uh, him having a faithful, trusty companion that helps him... In fact, I would say between the two of them, they make Sancho. Because Sancho knows what's going on. He has Timon's wit. Yeah. I'm Sancho, yes, I'm Sancho. Follow my And there's nobody absolutely deluded in this. Simba is not, uh, well, I suppose Simba is sort of um, pretending to be. Simba basically goes Rastafarian for several years 
and uh, and just says no worries and decides he's just going to hang out in the jungle having fun. By which, of course, I mean white raster college boys. Now chant down Babylon midterm essays, then puff from De Chalice IP make from a Sprite can. Last week I read a book about Selassie I, then told my Bomba Clot parents I was switching religions. I suppose in polar opposition to the idea of having a, a heavy crown and actually taking on the responsibilities of uh, being able to keep the natural order. I suppose he could be more chaotic about it. He could just be a, a wild, mad lion going around killing every, everything that he sees. But this is, I suppose, a, um, a, a point of exact neutrality where he's not affecting the rest of the world and it's not affecting him. Well, it's he, because he's living in a state of complete denial at this point, it's almost like he does exactly the opposite of what Mufasa said he would have to do. Mm. He's He's gone, right, here's all this responsibility that I bear. Nope, we're going to put all that over here, and I will be down there eating grubs. And you mentioned, by the way, that if he really did just eat grubs for two years, which is apparently how long he's away, uh, he'd just be this malnourished, coughing, skeletal lion. Pretty much, yeah. I, I don't think a lion could grow into the um, fine adolescent specimen that Simba becomes without some serious state going on. Your theory was that uh, he's sneaking away at night to, to hunt and eat and then yeah, come back in the morning and just and go, not telling them. Yeah, I'll just have a couple of grubs this morning, guys. I'm stuffed from yesterday. <laughs> he may have eaten Pumbaa's mum. Ooh. That's getting cut out. <laughs> what? What did you say? Verb, nothing. You know the law. Never, ever mention that name in my presence. I am the king. Yes, sire, you are the king. I, I, well, I only mentioned it to illustrate the differences in your royal managerial approaches. <laughs> hey, Bob. What is it this time? We got a bone to pick with you. I'll handle this. Scar, there's no food, no water. Yeah. It's dinner time, and we ain't got no sticking entrees. It's the lioness's job to do the hunting. Yeah, but they won't go hunt. Oh, eat Zazu. Oh, you wouldn't want me. I'd be so tough and gamey. <laughs> Zazu, don't be ridiculous. All you need is a little gun. I thought things were bad under Mufasa. What did you say? I said Mufasa. I said uh, Kepasa. Good. Now get out. Mm, yeah, but we're still hungry. Out! <laughs> Briefly cut back to Scar and uh, Zazu keeping him amused with It's a Small World and the lovely bunch of coconuts. I think this is mainly just to show that Scar is not a king. Scar is just a fat pimp lying on his back in his horrible slum doing nothing really with his uh, rulership. Yeah, I guess they kind of have to... I mean. Nala is later going to tell us what's happened, but it yeah. probably helps for the audience to see for ourselves how bad things have gotten and kind of want. We got to have a reason to want Simba to leave this fun jungle yeah. with the fun songs and the and these goofy, funny characters. Yeah, because we want to stay there. The, um, the, the, the these two parts of the movie really do oppose each other, don't they? Because you you've got the real world and a dream world that Simba has immersed himself in. This. Uh, the whole point of an oasis is, is actually nine times out of ten it doesn't exist. It's just what a, an incredibly parched desert traveller wants to see most in the world. So yeah, you could go into all kinds of psychological ramifications about Simba retreating in here. Uh. Whoa, 
Oh, nice one, Simba. Thanks. Man, I'm stuffed. Me too. I ain't like a pig. Pumba, you are a pig. Oh, right. <sighs> Timon! Yeah? Ever wonder what those sparkly dots are up there? Pumba, I don't wonder. I know. Oh, what are they? They're fireflies. Fireflies that, that got stuck up in that big bluish black thing. Oh. Gee, I always thought they were balls of gas burning billions of miles away. Pumba, with you, everything's gas. Simba, what do you think? Well, I don't know. Oh, come on, well, give, give, come give, on, give, give, Simba, give, Simba, Simba. Simba. Nah, we give, 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 Somebody once told me that the great kings of the past are up there, watching over us. Really? You mean a bunch of royal dead guys are watching us? <laughs> <laughs> Who told you something like that? Yeah, yeah. What mook made that up? <laughs> yeah, pretty dumb, huh? Oh, you're killing me, son. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Was it something I said? Cut to the stargazing and Pumba actually being correct about the balls of gas burning billions of miles away. Although that did also remind me of that bit in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, even in your world, Son of Adam, that is not what a star is, but only what a star is made of. Which ultimately speaks to the same thing that they're doing in The Lion King here. They're saying... It's what the stars do and say to us, not what they are. And in this case, ultimately, stars make you feel small. If you look out into the massiveness of the universe, it gives you a sense of scale. It, it makes you realize how insignificant you are, how insignificant the Earth is. And again, if it's going back to the absolute dawn of mankind's ability to reckon on himself at all. You've got the sun and then you've got the stars. That applies in whether a physical context or a spiritual context. It's something that is so huge and vast it makes you feel small, irrespective of what you interpret them to be. Yeah. Which you could also apply to that father stroke God relationship. The idea that this, uh, this being, this individual, is ultimately your your template, your role model, but you see them as so vastly beyond you, you don't conceive how you could ever reach that point. Yeah. The stars are the one thing. I mean, and I guess it's pretty clear seeing it, but that's the one thing from Simba's old life that remains with him in any way. They're the only, the, even though they're just kind of the ancient kings of the past that is, story that his father told him they're the only people from his old life that can still see him where he is yeah. and they and he looks up and sees them every night still that still looking down on him and knowing yeah you're absolutely i didn't even thought about that but yeah they're, they're the um the overview the 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 whole story which he cannot escape oh, wow 
At this point in the uh, stage play, uh, Nala wanders far, and she's actually, they, they make a more big deal of the fact that um, she's actually going off to find help. She's, uh, she speaks to the rest of the lionesses and, and um, looks at what's happened to their home and uh, what she has to go and do. I'm going to play it for you now. There's a song called Shadowland, which she sings, and it brings in the central sad theme of The Lion King, and makes it seem like this is a song that should have been there from the very beginning. And so it, it always feels like part of The Lion King to me. Yeah. 
That is, I have to say, my favourite sample of music in the film itself. Yeah. Even even before I heard the um, the stage version of it, it's my favourite song in the stage version. It's another one of those. It it just has something about it that breaks my heart every time I hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Zimmer has done a lot of great scores in his day, but that one piece of music and all its different kind of permutations in this film. And it comes in in a lot of very emotional places in this film and works in a lot of different ways in each one. But it is one of my favorite pieces of music he's ever made. For me, it's, um, if I was going to really say, I love a piece of the, I I love the whole thing, all of the music in this, but it's the, um, when Simba ascends pride rock, that piece of music. Yeah. And it's, that theme as well, and I mix, and I kind of mix the two up because there, there's a very similar feel about them. But yeah, yeah well, one of them leads on to the other usually when uh, when Rafiki turns up after Simba's been feeling sorry for himself. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you think about it, especially with the addition of the lyrics from the stage version, they're both about these two rulers taking their responsibilities seriously and stepping into mm. the the on. Oh, what's that thing about the the setting your foot on the path that's laid out before you? That's what they're both doing in those instances. Again, go back and listen to just read the lyrics to Circle of Life, and it just it says the whole story. So Nala strikes, uh, nearly eats Pumba. Um, I think she was just going to have a snack while she continued going to look for help, but uh, the yeah the the savagery of the lions here. They don't pull their punches here. She's not just like, her Her eyes are feral at this stage. She's going in there. And when Simba fights her, they don't, again, they don't pull their punches. This is a vicious fight. The only way it's mitigated for the kids so the kids aren't scared out of their minds is, yeah, get her, bite her head from, uh, uh, from Timon. And of course, yeah, uh, the, the, the hilarity of seeing Pumbaa stuck Winnie the Pooh style with his ass poking out. And then cut to the Can You Feel the Love Tonight. How did this actually develop, Sharon? I, I, I think I may have walked out the room for half a minute during the beginning of the, this actual scenario. In the original screenings, this Can You Feel the Love Tonight moment was supposed to be sung entirely by Timon and Pumbaa. No, no, no. Not, not quite, no. Um, when it was originally written... Uh, Elton John intended it to be this incredibly heartfelt, serious uh, love song. Oh, right. And then he, he'd obviously handed over all the lyrics and music and everything, and they were putting the whole film together. And when they were preparing it for the early screenings, the writing team or whoever it was that made that decision had had the idea of actually turning it into a little bit of a Mickey take with Timon and Pumba singing it, almost turning it into a parody of that. Yeah, and that was the version that they so like a, uh, like hey everybody remember that Beauty and the Beast song we're not gonna do that heartfelt thing here we're yes. gonna we're just gonna just like ripping into it um, yeah. and um, Elton John had was in attendance at 
the one of these very early screenings, and he <laughs> saw leaned the whole over thing. and whispered, "No, no, no, he ruined this movie." No, no, he didn't say anything at the time. Oh no, right. He was he was very professional about it, and and sort of you know nodded and smiled and went away. Then he rang Jeffrey Katzenberg and screamed down the phone at him, "You've ruined this movie." Um, <laughs> I think it was Katzenberg's idea that they, it should be sung as a comedy number the whole way well, through. Well, I don't know. It may have been. It seems like the fact that it was it, it's bookended by that. It starts off. I can see yeah, what's exactly. happening. Yeah, exactly. And I and actually then at the think end, that works really well. Yeah, it, it does. starts that way, and then it segs into this, you know, incredibly sincere. It doesn't have to be romantic, but it can be romantic. It's very um, sincere, though. It's like new sincerity levels of sincere. Indeed. Yeah, so I mean, their idea of having Timon and Pumbaa kind of do it like singing sort of the sincere lyrics, but in but from their perspective, this is a disaster. Oh no! <laughs> like, not sure. I, mean, they, I love the them going. Still in there. I think that if there's a weak moment in The Lion King, it's just that moment, possibly. But you could argue that that kind of outlines this uh, um, immature... They're babies! Exactly. (laughs) That that's the way of looking at the world that they had tried to encourage in Simba, but they have failed because that's not who Simba really is. Yeah. But you can get that. And in short, our pal is doomed. Yes, you can. I didn't say it was necessary. One too far, saying, folks. Yeah. Either way, the f- I'd still say the film registers as perfect. It, I'm sure we're going to get a few people telling us that they happen to fall into this category, but I very rarely meet people who don't like The Lion King. And when I do, I feel a little bit sorry for them. And that's not that's not a poor reflection on anybody listening who goes, well, I don't like The Lion King. I don't feel sorry for you directly. But when I hear that, I think, oh, it sucks that you can't feel this. More recently reading about the backlash to La La Land, got the same feeling. Oh, poor those guys. You know, whenever I um, don't like a movie that I hear other people love, I feel a little bit envious of them. Somebody mentioned this when I was talking about The Shining yesterday. Like, uh, I I really don't get anything out of The Shining, but um, I, I kind of wish that I could care about it as much as the people who do. I know what you mean. There are many things, both movie... TV, game, lots of things that lots of people love that I will I will try over and over. Mm. <laughs> like Half-Life to, 2. Yeah, like for me, I will try, and I can very much appreciate like the Dark Souls, Demon Souls type mm. games. I yeah, totally so. appreciate what they're doing, but I can't get into it the way that, that a lot of other people do. In the interim three years since we recorded that, Dan played a lot of Dark Souls as part of his video series. So he, he likes it now, I think. My God, do I wish I could love Dark Souls as much as those guys. Because those guys, like, they get energy from how much they love Dark Souls. Yeah, it's just seeing someone love something so much. And you're like, I can't get that. I love that you can. I wish I could get that from this. I totally do. But I, yeah. I don't hold it against you or this thing. I just, I'm kind of envious. But yeah, so uh, if, if folks who really don't like The Lion King still uh, reassess it and still don't like it, then yeah, we know how you feel, but about other things. But yeah, it's, this is kind of like the Shawshank Redemption for me in, in animated form. Uh, Andreas Dehar mentioned uh, this is not, you know, after the, the later reels of seeing the test runs, this was not going to be a B movie anymore. This was going to be an A+, which I thought was just being facetious. And I thought, well, actually, no, there may be something in that if there's a B movie and an A movie, and then there's a really special A movie that just becomes immortal. That's an A-plus movie. 
Yeah. So I think that there should be that uh, that grade. Toy Story, A+. plus. Yeah, there's certain movies that are great, and then there are certain ones that are all the right kinds of great at the right time mm. to cause a huge shift or just make it leave a huge impact on a ton of people. And that kind of and makes it, like you said, immortal. And I think that there's if you, there's a lot of things that kind of have to come together for that to happen. But yeah. when it does, it's extra special. That's what... Oh. <laughs> Again, to go off on a tangent, all of these old men in uh, fantasy films and sci-fi trying to get immortality, that's how you become immortal. You just do something that's just people adore for future generations. That's your immortality. Yeah, like these classic films that we remember, that we, I mean, remake and try to recapture again, like the the Ghostbusters, the Back to the Futures, the, all these classic movies that Star we are Wars. never, Star Wars, that we are never, ever going to forget. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that fits in with that idea of your your true death is when somebody says your name for the last time. And if you've, if you've created something that lives longer than you, as long as people are engaging with that thing, they are effectively saying your name. And this is at odds with the whole idea of... Um these animators going unsung it's their work ultimately that's uh, the people are adoring which ultimately but, your work always has to be bigger than you uh, unless you're like Shakespeare or something you've just done so much good stuff your work has to be bigger than you yeah animation I guess like a lot of big collaborative works is you succeed as a team yeah. in a way like some people will emerge kind of as the star players who will be will be remembered for that but uh but yeah you you are part of a big grand thing and all working together to make a grand thing and you kind of feel like you succeed you don't it doesn't feel like a it's like a singular solo success i don't think maybe unless you're like the like someone who's a director or someone who's really kind of guiding guiding the ship yeah i think uh yeah i think a lot i don't think a lot of animators especially of the Disney types from this era would feel like they got the short end of the stick. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, animation and a lot of other film uh, roles are, can be quite invisible, but when you know that, like when you look around and you see, there are a lot of guys, even at Pixar who may not even be super into cars. They may have worked on cars. Then they don't didn't. And it's not like one of their favorite movies. They think it was pretty good. They think they did a, a good job on it. But they look around and they see everywhere kids like with cars, toys and cars, backpacks and cars, lots of things. And they realize that this is the stuff that this kid is going to grow up with that like I have made in some small way. I have made a huge impact on a lot of kids lives yeah. or helps to make a huge impact. And that I think is way more important to a lot of these uh, the people who work on these things than singular like solo glory but george lucas wishes he'd sold star wars to disney in 1996 that way he'd always be remembered as just this wonderful person instead he's going to be the sort of like loved and hated in almost equal measure if star wars get, uh, we're again but if star wars gets <laughs> gets pulled back kind of out of the hole if jj and then oh gosh who's the other guy who's got eight and nine who I'm really excited about Ryan Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, if they can pull star Wars back into greatness, I wonder if in retrospect, Lucas will be remembered more fun. Like the prequel stuff will be kind of forgotten and just star Wars as a whole will be so beloved again. Yeah. No, JJ completely and utterly pulled star Wars back to better than it's ever been. 
and uh, the prequels were used as a stick to hit Episode 7 and Rogue One over the head with for the objectionable progressive elements. By awful prats claiming that the prequels were somehow better because XYZ. But I've not seen a prevailing mood of, shall we please forgive George Lucas? He's paid his dues. And we should. But Fox, Disney, pull your fingers out and recruit the guys who made the despecialized editions to give you their cuts of the original trilogy for the long-awaited re-release on Blu-ray and streaming. Because I can't even watch Return of the Jedi in HD unless I've got my despecialized edition. Blinking Ewoks and going, no! No way. I can see what's happening. What? And they don't have a clue. Oh, they'll fall in love, and here's the bottom line. Our trio's down to two. Oh. The sweet caress of twilight. There's magic everywhere. And with all this romantic atmosphere, disaster's in the air. To make her see the truth about my past, impossible. She'd turn away from me. He's holding back, he's hiding. But what I can't decide. Why won't he be the king I know he is, the king I see inside? Immediately following uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, there's this conflict and the argument. And this uh, Nala uh, outlines herself as one of the strongest, most admirable Disney females at this stage. Definitely the, uh, the, my, one of my absolute favorite Disney princesses. The, the whole, um, you're starting to sound like my father. Good. 
at least one of us is. That's just it's a it's a great way to um to show that ultimately that the character that Nala is is the character that Simba should be. Well, she's take like I said in respect to the music, she's taken responsibility. She is trying to help the pride. Yeah. She's doing all of the things that he's run away from. Yeah. Isn't this a great place? It is beautiful. But I don't understand something. You've been alive all this time. Why didn't you come back to Pride Rock? Well, I just needed to get out on my own. Live my own life. And I did. And it's great. We've really needed you at home. No one needs me. Yes, we do. You're the king. Nala, we've been through this. I'm not the king. Scar is. Simba, he let the hyenas take over the Pride Lands. What? Everything's destroyed. There's no food, no water. Simba, if you don't do something soon, everyone will starve. I can't go back. Why? You wouldn't understand. What wouldn't I understand? No, no, no. It doesn't matter. Hakuna Matata. What? Hakuna Matata. It's something I learned out here. Look, sometimes bad things happen. Simba. And there's nothing you can do about it. So why worry? Because it's your responsibility. Well, what about you? You left? I left to find help. And I found you. Don't you understand? You're our only hope. Sorry. What's happened to you? You're not the Simba I remember. You're right. I'm not. Now are you satisfied? No. Just disappointed. You know, you're starting to sound like my father. Good. At least one of us does. Listen! You think you can just show up and tell me how to live my life? You don't even know what I've been through. I would if you just tell me. Forget it. Fine! But you can also see all these misgivings and all this this crap that he's been twisted up inside by Scar. This was not through a Mufasa's doing. Because of Scar's manipulations, he's misinterpreted and uh, and felt all of this massive amount of pressure and guilt as a result. And it's an enormous sack of bricks that he needs to lay down, and it requires Rafiki's intervention to help him. It does outline a little bit, actually, um, and obviously it's been greatly storified, for want of a better word, but the fact that as children you can hear things and take things on board that adults say and situations that happen, and you can wildly misinterpret something, but it stays with you for your the rest of your life. And even if later on, um, particularly if it doesn't happen until adulthood, you find out the truth of that situation or you realise what that phrase actually meant or that that person who said that thing wasn't really thinking of what you thought they were thinking of at all, You, it's really difficult to unpick what's been laid down by what your original interpretation was. Yeah. So when Rafiki does appear and steadfastly refuses to just be the Gandalf type or or, uh, the Morpheus type and force uh, Simba with massive amounts of exposition, he keeps it very simple and acts like a crazy person. That was actually going to be originally at the presentation of Simba in the first one. He was supposed to do that, but it was just, it was awkwardly funny at a point when it really needed to not be and kind of racist as well <laughs> this is what actual african priests talk like uh, but no at this point he's um he's coming on as the fool and uh wasn't the fool in king lear actually the smartest guy in the room 
Yeah, and I was about to say, actually, I would refute your use of the term crazy person there because... Rafiki is about the sanest person involved in all of this. He knows exactly what's going on, and more to the point, he knows exactly what to do. And I think I... If he immediately really... jumps on board with a load of pressure and, ah, how's it going, Simba? Right, now here's the list of things you have to do. <laughs> exactly. He uses his uh, foolishness and his silliness in order to get, his point across and if you think about it isn't that what some of the best comedy i know we don't talk about comedy on here but the the best comedy does they give you silliness and in doing so they manage to get you to take on board some of the most serious points you will ever absorb the lego movie yeah that was one of the things i was thinking of also south park <laughs> I think Rafiki's intervention to this whole sequence is probably, yeah, it's hard to pick, but it may be one of my favorite overall mm. parts of this movie. That's something about, and I don't know if I'm really just kind of remembering this more from being a kid, but when it gets to the point where Rafiki says, it's a wrong again, you're, it's like, he's alive and I'll show him to you. You follow Rafiki, he knows the way. And then charges into this thick, like thick jungle area. Mm. There's like, still as a kid brain, I'm sort of thinking like, and as the same way that Simba would be just very confused with thinking, could he actually still be alive like this character we've been relying on and that made everything feel so safe and right. It was just this perfect father figure that Simba needs. And that wonderful chase through the trees with this, the, with Freaky, with Rafiki kind of laughing and echoing. And there's something kind of a little scary and mystical about it. And just really driving percussion beat as Simba tries to catch up and then leading to the pool where Rafiki reveals what he was saying and what he was meaning. And then just, and then everything that follows with Mufasa, it's in with Mufasa in the sky is, I mean, that's obviously, that's like one of the most powerful parts of this entire movie. And just this whole intervention and everything leading up to it and the way it kind of leads both Simba's and your emotions along the way, it kind of takes you on the trip from this is a, silly monkey doing a silly thing to he seems kind of wise and all right wait he knows that he Mufasa's alive let me follow him and just you completely follow the same emotional arc that Simba does in this entire sequence and it's just great oh my god I've just realized what Rafiki's doing at that point you know we we said about the fact that he, he leads him into all of this tangled undergrowth and this was something that they, they mentioned on the documentary that it's it's, it's the tangled basically, briar patch of Simba's mind that he's been exactly, stuck in since he's he went away leading him back into that tangle of, of emotions and and, um, and scarring but by saying to him Mufasa's alive come on I'll show you where he is he is literally taking Simba and putting his emotions back to that point where he lost his face, basically saying, you got to get back to this point where your path went wrong and then we'll start again. Prior to the time when you started taking way too much to heart, what Scar yeah. told you. Yeah. Before you started on the, the, the wrong steps and the, and the feeling that you had to run away. I believe it's called a shame spiral. Before you started eating yeah. so many bugs. Yes. <laughs> They yes. mess up your brain. You Let's know. move away from the book. Have you been having those hallucinogenic ones again? Because you need to stay away from those. But I, I mean, this whole sec, uh, sequence with Mufasa, I, I saw this film in the cinema 
and I would have been... So jealous. I saw it on pirate video at a friend's house. Oh, bless you. Um, I think I must have been about 14 or 15 when it came out. And I think it must have stuck with me a lot more strongly than I consciously realised it did because that phrase, remember who you are, that was something that I kept... In my mid to late adolescence, I went through a a fairly difficult um, patch of uh, bullying and feeling very isolated within my peer group. And this remember who you are was what I kept coming back to to get me through that remember who you are you can deal with this don't fold there's a short list of films that I did see in the cinema instead of The Lion King in 1994 Forrest Gump True Lies Speed Dumb and Dumber Forwarding uh, f- <laughs> I love these little flagellation lists you have of like <laughs> the movies I saw instead of this great thing this year. Forwardings in a funeral, I did like. So, so I ended up seeing this like this is one of the only films I actually saw at a drive-in theater thing where like my family went. The screen, I mean, I was probably like ten or eleven then because the screen like felt huge. It, it in retrospect it was a really cool way to see this movie for the first time, and yeah, it really, it really stuck. The scene in particular. Dumb and dumber. <laughs> so fucking dumb and dumb instead of this. I'm such a beast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a terrible person. Do we have to take you back in time to the yeah, point at yeah, which you I, I chose do. to see Dumb and Dumber instead of the light? I think we do, honey. <sighs> Oh dear. Anyway. Also, if you want to think about it like this, it's Yoda when he first appears to uh, uh, Luke behaves like a fool to draw Luke's true character and Aya out of him and then sends him into a tree which has Darth Vader in it to confront his true self. And in this case, it's the good Darth Vader. Sure do. You're Mufasa's boy. Bye. Hey, wait! You know my father? Correction, I know your father. I hate to tell you this, but he died a long time ago. Nope! Wrong again! (laughs) He's alive! And I'll show him to you! You follow old Rafiki, he knows the way. Come on! Don't dawdle! Hurry up! Hey, whoa, wait, wait! Come on! Come on! Would you slow down?
That's not my father. It's just my reflection. No! Look hard. You see? He lives in you. I go back. I'm not who I used to be. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. This is the point that it suddenly really turns into an A-plus movie. It's been huge before, but the cloud vision, the Hamlet seeing his father's ghost, uh, but the the reintroduction of Mufasa as this, if he was a demigod before, he's a god now in this, you know, his cloud form. He's someone Simba can never possibly live up to. And this immense pressure and this immense emotional surge and that voice and these glowing eyes, and, and the disappointment radiating forth from him, even as he becomes the son to his son. Um, yeah, just a way to get to everybody's daddy issues and all in one go, and to also give them this incredibly... like It, does, it doesn't even end on an incredibly uplifting moment. It ends in, in despair for Simba, because he, he chases after his father, and, and uh, he's been given the message, but that's it's not complete yet the message hasn't really sunk in it takes graffiti battering him with a stick yeah they don't end it on the big emotional high yeah he's not uh, just i know where i can what i need to do i will find my way i can go the distance he doesn't do that yet kind of left to process and think about this and graffiti kind of goes back to being sort of goofy kooky playing the fool a little bit letting simba kind of come to it on his own Mm. while still dispensing one of the best little condensed pieces of applied wisdom that I think I've seen in a movie. Yeah. It doesn't this. matter. It's in the past. The past can hurt, but as I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. Swings again, Simba ducks. It's, yeah. That's perfect way to visually communicate the idea. If you may only see one film to prepare you for life, this wouldn't be too bad if it's yeah. only that, that one central message that you walk away from. It, it actually covers loads to set you up for being prepared for life so i would say in many ways yes if you only see if you only show one film to your child make it this one what was that (laughs) the weather (laughs) very peculiar don't you think yeah looks like the winds are changing ah change is good yeah but it's not easy i know what i have to do but Going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! 
Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. Ah, you see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm going to take your stick. No, 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 not your stick. Hey, where are you going? I'm going back. Good. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> And this is the point where in the stage show, Rafiki reprises He Lives in You. And it's this, this wonderful kind of crystallization of everything that's happened to this point. And because it's a reprise, the chorus just pulls in and it's this incredible uplifting moment, which, uh, again, could have been in the film, might actually have been really effective in that way. But um, it, it just it's one of these things that I'm really glad that the stage show adds to the original story because it's like uh, in the same way as that the Shrek musical does it takes the base story and augments it and just adds a few extra bits into it which just sort of really enriches an already immensely rich tale this song did ultimately work its way into the Lion King 2 Simba's Pride and this is that version and it's fairly magnificent Calling, my 
and now. It is my very great pleasure to present to you the debut of the first ever trailer for Steamheart. This is the sixth story in the New Century multiverse, but it's designed to catch newcomers up to what's happened so far, as many of the characters from the different books in Phase 1 all meet up for one epic odyssey across America. It's 1873, and the Earth isn't doing so well. It's been ten years since the portals opened and the Wendigo first prowled among us. Their infectious bite left the human race in tatters. Over here in Washington, we're trying our best to bring things back together. It hasn't been easy. But today, we met some folks who just might be able to help. Two assassins. Climb aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This here ginormous steam-operated land vehicle you see before you is going to be a new home for all of us for the next half year. A one-eyed doctor and a crazy woman who sees ghosts. I hate confined spaces. She's claustrophobic. That too. A drug-addled journalist. Mother of God, man. We can't stop here. A monster zoologist. So where exactly did the mermaid bite you? Ouch. And our own dear sweet daughter. Alright, buckle up. Uh, we don't want to get stranded out in the wild, so can you please try not to break anything back there? Oh, this is going to be splendid. And that's who you're sending to save the world. Can you suggest anybody better suited to the job? Under the circumstances and in the short amount of time we have, it'll do. There is a force at work inside my body which I must unlock. Will you teach me? Of course I will. You are the child of the prophecy. Really? No! Prophecy. <laughs> you jackass. This team is all wrong. America doesn't want us. Girl, you forgot that bad things happen to them who come trespassing. And you forgot about our ten-foot-tall purple tiger. Oh, my stars and goddess, did you boys pick the wrong fight? Everybody, hold on real hard to the person next to you. This journey is about something more than just saving the world. This is about reminding the world why it's worth saving in the first place. And how were we ever supposed to accomplish that? I've never known friends like you before. If I was gonna build a family, these would be the components I'd need. When people are down, when they're scared and divided, when they want to curl up and die because things have gotten so bad, how the hell else are we gonna pick them back up again? We give them heroes. Steamheart. We found something out there. Or, more specifically, it found us. You were warned not to venture into these lands. Wait, hold on. I can explain. No, I can't. Run! The Princess Thieves will conclude in the next few weeks, and the first episode of Steamheart will follow soon after. To listen, subscribe to the New Century Multiverse wherever you get your podcasts. Immediately after uh, the uh, Simba takes his leave of Rafiki, and there's that joyful moment where Rafiki's just happy and laughing, and uh, you get the who's the warthog on first, which... It, it seems like just a bit of fun, but when it comes down to it, it's it's exposition. But they do it in the same way as uh, with uh, um, 
the Iago and uh, Jafar business with uh, Jafar, you're crushing me in uh, Aladdin. They combine the exposition with a bit to allow it to be rewatchable again and again in later later years, making a film which you know people are going to watch want to watch again and again and study every frame of is a really great policy because it means that you don't just sort of go, right, I've got to announce to the audience some stuff that will make what's about to happen make sense. Let's just assume they've already seen it, but at the same time, give the people who haven't already seen it some exposition in the middle of a bit. It's a a really neat way of actually handling things. You know, writers out there take note. This is kind of how how you uh, how you do it. You sort of you. It doesn't necessarily have to be funny, but if it's something that you you would enjoy seeing repeatedly, then it'll work as your exposition. Seeing yeah, or reading adds something else of value to the scene aside from just the information being shared. Because functionally, this is really only to inform Nala, Timon, and Pumbaa that Simba left and where he went. Yeah. That's really the only important bit of information in this entire scene that you need going forward. But you add in a few extra little bits, some comedy and some little character moments, and it, it suddenly has some additional value on top. Yeah, because if you think about it, the last time um, that Timon and Pumbaa were referring to Nala, there was still some hostility there, so uh, for them to suddenly be teamed up with Pumbaa, there needs to be some kind of interlinking moment to go from A to C. And again, the uh, the bit where uh, Simba's racing across the desert, it's actually really straightforward and simple. It's uh, the close-up on a lion's legs galloping across some sand, and Simba's determined face, and uh, Simba, you know, a wide shot of Simba running across an immense Lawrence of Arabia-style desert. It's just a single, you know, multiple dissolve shot, and it really convinces of the scale of this thing. It's not just straight across. You don't have to pan behind him and have him covering enormous amounts of ground. It's just that wonderful symbolic moment. Equipped with wonderful chanting music just to show the king is returning. This is a good thing. We should be happy, not necessarily trepidatious. Yeah, the trepidatious comes a mere seconds later. (laughs) It's like, I'm totally going to do this, and now I'm here, not entirely sure how. We're at the... uh, the castle that needs to be taken back. And Pride Rock is their castle. Let's not make no mistake about it. One of the neat things about Lion King 2, which I'm not sure if we'll ever review, uh, is everything happens to the west of Pride Rock in this, so that Pride Rock always juts out, pointing to the left. Everything in Lion King 2 is pointing to the right. It's, you, it's, it's the shadowy east side of Pride Rock, which you wouldn't get to see before. So it's kind of like the the behind. This is the uh, the truth about the Lion King side of things, which is a neat bit of directorial style on that. Uh, Sarabi turns up here, still very regal. Her abuse at the pause of Scar validates Simba leaping in and going right enough, because otherwise he might be just there upsetting the apple cart. It's a, it's a terrible thing to see your mother slapped down by a man. It's uh, impossible to bear for most people in the audience. So you know, at that point, there's just going to be a flare-up of emotion from everybody at the in- injustice of this thing going on, especially since Sarabi is so poised about how she approaches him without fear. Scar really did not have a whole... like For being the schemer, he did not have much of a contingency put in place for if Simba ever showed up again. Yeah. 
<laughs> Simba, you're here. You're dead. Uh, you're not dead. <laughs> he tries to go into recovery mode quickly, but it, he's scrambling. Yeah. There's a lot of star scream in there with, with him. Sharon, you getting that a bit there? Yeah. Just a little bit. Sneering, I only live to serve you. But if there was any point when Simba and um, Scar were on a helicopter of some description, you can bet Simba's get kicked out the door. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the lightning strike creating fire, another uh, touch point from the Jungle Book, the the sudden sea of fire around them. That's also in Sleeping Beauty as well, isn't it, when he's fighting the dragon? It's like the, the geography of a Disney movie. You all go, right, okay, so we're approaching the end scene. Okay, we're going to need either, either some torrential rain or, or some uh, fire. Let's do fire for conflict and then follow that with torrential rain. Uh, so uh, it will cleanse away the, uh, the hurt. Again, the big fight, it could just have been like way too serious. They put in some, some yucks for the kids. You got the Bruce Lee moment from uh, a Rafiki. Which is amusing. There's a, a, a in the heat of the night reference. From they t- they call me Mr. Tibbs from Mr. Sidney Poitier. Somehow crowbarred into the whole Pumba thing, <laughs> um, like from the most serious of films. It's a funny line, but again, you, you kind of wonder how many of the target audience are actually going to get it. Hey, it beats a friggin' disco moment, referencing Absolutely. Saturday Night Fever, which no small child should see. And the hula bit is legitimately funny. Yeah, so. absolutely uh, right. The the hula bit is is uh, hilarious, mainly down to the pacing, uh, and and uh, Timon's exasperated eyes of I can't believe I'm doing this while he's doing it. And in, the, in the, uh, the, it really kind of shows when it, in the frames when he goes ah you're aching in kind of desperation. Yeah, yeah they do a lot of good cutting for comedy in this film. I particularly noticed like. It's especially with Timon, like the instant he said, what do you want me to do? Dress and drag and do the cool up drums immediately start playing. <laughs> it cuts to, like not even time for the bit to sink in or for a reaction shot. Just immediate A to B. And it's super funny. I love it. Oh, no, there is no way. No way. I'm getting on a boat. Cut to person on a boat. Yeah, it's it's a classic comedy trope, often abused, but done extremely well here. Mainly, again, down to pacing because they just they show you the bit. They get they move on. And it's just a kind of move along the again it's it's juxtaposing the very serious with the very silly just to keep the um the various members of the audience happy in a way that again really shouldn't work this should be annoying when they go back and forth with the yucks and well i haven't seen the hunchback of notre dame in a little while but there are times when the tones feel like they clash weirdly in that one but they feel like they work in this and i Maybe it's just that the comedy is sort of laced throughout, sometimes lightly, sometimes heavily, so it never feels weird when it's there. Like the hyenas are sometimes funny, Scar is sometimes funny. The Timon and Pumbaa are almost always funny. Some of the other characters are, there's Zazu who's occasionally funny. So even when you get to serious moments, there are some of these funny characters there, so it can still be funny. Whereas in other films, it just, I'm amazed this balancing act works. Like I said from the beginning. You're totally on board with the trying to depose of Scar because uh, when it comes down to it, he has no really good argument for Simba as to why he should maintain his kingship. Uh, everything that he has, has is, is built upon a lie and you know it. And um, he goes from slinking and swe- swearing fealty again in a way that he may have done with Mufasa at one point. Uh, but Simba decides, run away. And that would appear to be the one thing Scar never wants to do. This is what he tells uh, Simba to do. This is to him maybe a fate worse than death. 
Like he can't survive on his own. He can't survive without somebody around to manipulate. Yeah. I feel a little bit for the lionesses during everything from Simba's return to the start of the actual fight, because they have a lot to keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> like, Suddenly. hey, Simba's alive. Hey, now there's some talk about what Simba killed Mufasa. Wow, that's news. Now Simba might die. Scar killed Mufasa now. <laughs> like, there's there's a lot of new information they have to keep up with. There's, yeah. uh, there's one shot, like I think it's when Simba jumps up and pounces on Scar and yells murderer, and they show another reaction shot of them looking, going from surprised to more surprised, which is just, I always feel just a hint of sympathy and kind of giggle a little bit, though I know I shouldn't in that moment, just because like they're they're getting a whirlwind of information right now. You could also imagine like one of them sitting here going, way, 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 well, whole time out here. Yeah. Simba the cub killed Mufasa? How is that even possible? Or there's two lionesses in the back and just saying, like, I feel like I missed a step. So who killed Mufasa? That's, so like, no, no, no. Like, no, Scar killed Mufasa. Is it Simba? Like, what, did Simba kill anyone? I don't is think that so. Mufasa? Is Mufasa back? No, that's Simba. Simba's a Hang on. They start drawing a chart in the dirt. Nobody ever tells me nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to remember, a lot of these lionesses would have been about Nala's age um, when that whole thing happened. Oh, that's true. Yeah. God knows what Scar did to him as well. Jesus. <laughs> Don't let uh, Disney would like you to stop thinking too deeply about the lionesses, folks. <laughs> there is interestingly a lot of um, uh, stuff again twisted in with uh, Lion King two regarding uh, Scar's lineage and uh, the way uh, the repercussions of Scar's brief time as monarch of the Pride Lands uh, and what he left behind. I like the idea that it carries on from this story, and it's not just, hey, let's just do another fun adventure. They pitch that very much as, uh, if this is Hamlet, then Lion King 2 is Romeo and Juliet, and Lion King 3 is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah. If you're a Tom Stoppard fan out there. I really like Romeo and Clancy Guildenstern are dead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you especially want Scar to go down after he uh, says, yes, and slinks away and then goes, your majesty, and then throws the uh, embers into Simba's eyes. It's like, you low-down, dirty cheat. That's a polite way of saying it. The... Um, Actual comeuppance comes not by the uh, the usual Disney fall because they could they could just have had him fall into the flames and that's it. No, 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 death by association. He lands on the hyenas that he's lied to and manipulated and have ended up worse for wear as a result of him. Were they not there at all, he would have been able to slink away alive. Were they actual friends of his who he hadn't lied to? He may have been able to muster an army and retake the uh, Pride Rock. But because he used them quite so obviously, uh, they are able to take their revenge on him in a way that kind of feels... It's like Cobra with um, uh, Jacobs in um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Sharon. Yes. And it feels like a sudden justice in that as well, which obviously appeals to kids with an overdeveloped sense of justice. So when Trump screws over middle America, and he will, throw him to the farmers. And also it means that it's not actually Simba who kills him. Simba, like, Simba vaults him back over him in a defensive maneuver, but ultimately if they'd just had Scar die from the fall, then Simba straight away, straight out threw Scar to his death. But So yeah, it's, it's right and true that the hyenas be the ones to actually strike the killing blow. And to benefit from it, they get a meal. Ew. <laughs> I'm going to eat your heart and gain your strength. Or possibly eat your brains in this scenario. 
For all his vaunted brains, though, Scar is actually not that much of a master strategist. He's good at getting into power, but no good at using it. Yeah, good manipulator, good schemer, but he I mean, he doesn't didn't seem to have a plan beyond just getting to the place of power. Again, kind of like Starscream in uh, the original Transformers movie. to see you alive give me one good reason why I shouldn't rip you apart oh Simba you must understand the pressures of ruling a kingdom are no longer yours step down Scar oh okay well, I would naturally however there is one little problem you see them they think I'm king well we don't Simba's the rightful king. The choice is yours, Scar. Either step down or fight. Oh, must this all end in violence? I'd hate to be responsible for the death of a family member. Wouldn't you agree, Simba? That's not gonna work, Scar. I've put it behind me. But what about your faithful subjects? Have they put it behind them? Simba, what is he talking about? Ah, so you haven't told them your little secret. Well, Simba, now's your chance to tell them. Tell them who is responsible for Mufasa's death. I am. It's not true. Tell me it's not true. It's true. You see, he admits it. Murderer. No, it was an accident. If it weren't for you, Mufasa would still be alive. It's your fault he's dead. Do you deny it? No. Then you're guilty. No, I'm not a murderer. Oh, Simba, you're in trouble again. But this time, Daddy isn't here to save you. And now everyone knows why. Simba! This looks familiar. Mm-hmm. Where have I seen this before? Let me think. Oh, yes, I remember. This is just the way your father looked before he died. And here's my little secret. I killed Mufasa. No, Simba, please. Tell them the truth. Truth, but truth is in the eye of the bulk. All right. All right. I did it. So they can hear you. I killed Mufasa. It's important to note that the slow motion would not have been possible without caps, again, during the actual lion fight. Again, very cinematic. And emphasizing some very hard hits for a family film, too. Yeah. But it's animal on animal, which for some reason is okay. Yeah. You get that into a U. Although in 
the Golden Compass, Yorick Bernison knocks the bottom of Jaffa Ragnarsson's jaw clean off and bites out True. his tongue. So I've seen worse in kids' films since then. There's something about the tone of that fight as soon as it goes into slow motion that feels like it's big and important and sort of right, but also feels kind of sad and wrong and like, but like it has to happen and yeah. I don't know. It feels like there's a mix of emotions kind of happening with the going into slow motion there. Cause it's certainly not just glamorizing cool lions fighting and it's not necessarily just a heroic Simba here to, I mean, I guess it, in a sense it is him stepping up and finally doing like taking action and taking the big final step he needs to take to finally set everything right. But there is, it feels like with the music and the emphasis on these big hits and this just really brutal fight between huge cats that it's a, I don't know, it just feels like there's more emotions woven in there than just a kind of a triumphant thing. Yeah. I think part of that is that you know that there is the possibility that Simba could die. I mean, obviously not in the context of the film, but in the, in that fight, it's not predetermined that Simba is going to win that fight. Scar has a few tricks up his sleeve that, you know, aren't going to leave him completely and utterly defenseless. And you know Simba doesn't really want to fight. He His pref- uh, preferred outcome for this is for Scar to leave. Mm. He's not a violent, aggressive person. He doesn't want to get into a physical confrontation. He's not even a particularly active, competitive person. Even if this was just a, um, a, a, a non-emotionally loaded territory battle, you get the impression that he wouldn't really be that into it. Hmm. Nala could have ended this fight in seconds. <laughs> By comparison. Yeah. The actual finale of this film is a, a masterstroke of brief visual storytelling they just they get it done in very short order um after the fire dies down that you know obviously the conflict dies down the reds go to blues the the rain comes in the water cleansing it uh, giving the land obviously the uh the, the the rainfall it needs to to survive um hinting at the life that's going to be able to come back from that uh rafiki gestures to the uh mountain on pride rock and says it is time but this is Simba's responsibility rather than his destiny. It feels like it's there is a difference between the two of them. It's not necessarily that, that, that Simba was always going to do this. He had to fight to get it. It's not something that was just going to happen to him. Very specifically, he had to choose to go back to it. I know exactly what you mean. It, although he is... Uh, allegedly destined to be the king, you know, that's kind of a preordained special blood, you were born to the royal line kind of situation. He's demonstrated that he could quite easily walk away from that and not get involved. Mm. And somebody else would just take over. And if it wasn't Scar, it would be someone else. Zero. But, yeah. Um, but he, as you say, he chooses to go back. He chooses to step up and take that responsibility. But very significantly, having taken that responsibility, he then embraces it fully. He, Although he is still a little afraid of it, he doesn't bottle it a second time. Oh, God. 
embraces it fully. He embraces Rafiki representing that responsibility gladly. And the first time you see Rafiki, he's embracing Mufasa. Yeah. Then he takes his ascent, starts to walk up. The music soars up. You realize quite how right everything is suddenly becoming with the world. The wildebeest skull is washed away by the water. Perfectly encapsulating not only that the decay is being cleansed, but that everything that Simba had held in his heart and uh, mind, all relating back to the wildebeest stampede and um, what he did on that day, it's just being let go of at that stage because he's been able to deal with it and he's been able to move forwards. And then he roars, very simply. He proves that he's, he's, uh, he's the king and uh, he's on the rock and everybody leaps up in, uh, in absolute approval because that's, things have, have returned to the balance that they were supposed to be at without Scar's meddling. And then it gathers into the circle of life, bringing us full circle to where we were at the very beginning. Uh, the land is restored to greenery. Every, all the animals are gathered round again, exactly the same, to the point where uh, Lyra, when she was very young, wasn't even really sure what was going on. She thought that Simba was Mufasa. And uh, that the Simba there was, you know, that when they were um, showing uh, the baby lion cub, that it's like it was a flashback to what had happened before because everything matches again. And they don't actually mention that uh, this is Princess Kiara and it's a girl. Uh, and in fact, on the commentary, which I'm assuming comes from the Laserdisc, which happened before Lion King 2 and before the DVD came out, uh, they just referred to this cub as Fluffy. And even ending again, as you had with the title sequence, with the title and the big drum boom. Boom. Just on that, at that same sort of moment with the cub raised up in the sky, just reinforcing just the just the cycle that has this now been restored will happen it's again. Ha- yeah, yeah yeah it's a perfect way to end this
I mean, it's a heartbeat thump at that point as well. It's, 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 I, I would defy anyone to sit in a crowded theater specifically for the first time and not feel their heart sore at this stage. Uh, I was very lucky enough to be able to pursue this and watch it in IMAX when we, uh, where we, this was in the mid 2000s when uh, it came to London. And, um, was that in 3D or just massive? That was just massive. <laughs> it was incredible. And that kind of made up for the crappy first time I saw it on uh, Pirate Video. Even then, it made it had an impact. You know, that experience as a teenager and people are talking in the room and you just wish they'd shut the hell up so that you could watch this Lion King thing, even though you're 14 years old and you're really supposed to be beyond Disney at this point. Oy. I wonder if that still affects kids. Maybe, you know, kids who are, have only just come out of their teens, maybe let us know whether that stigma still exists regarding Disney. That you're supposed to move on from it. Because very shortly after that, I started collecting all of these 90s. Because we were in the, we were maybe the wrong age for the 90s renaissance, because I was like 18 when Mulan came out. I mean, that's, a, I suppose, maybe a time when you can start appreciating these things on a more grown-up level. But that's um, that's a tough time to be uh, under immense social pressure when all of these incredible animated movies are coming out that you're not supposed to love. See, I may have had it slightly easier being your girl, yeah. um, but um, the only ones that I saw in the cinema were Aladdin and Lion King, and that would have been ages 13 or 14 and 14 and 15, and I saw both of them with groups of friends, and there were no issues whatsoever. I actually think I would have liked to have been a little older uh, when these films came out, so that, as you say, I could have appreciated them a bit better. Mm. Yeah. I was just, again, I was like 10 or 11 when this came out, so... <laughs> through the whole renaissance i was very much the right age but i was also one of those kids who didn't like i may have felt the pressure to kind of grow out of the disney thing but i don't think i ever did but kind of i would have spent most gone through most of high school still being very much into the disney type of thing and then even going into college probably especially as i started getting into animation at school i would have just been continuing to there was ever, wasn't ever really a breaking point between me and animated stuff. That actually all stands to reason, considering your uh, career choice. It was, it was funny watching this again, because it brought triggered a memory that I'd forgotten completely, but that did sort of explain a few things. Like The first time talking with my mom after we'd seen it, and she was describing just kind of like how, like, uh, how moved she was by that in the opening sequence in The Circle of Life, where all the... Simba's raised high and all the animals start to bow and stuff like that. Just how like powerful imagery, just how moving that was mm. for her. And I remember thinking as like, I was marveling at like how they managed to make all the animals bow in a physical, like <laughs> how they, because wildebeest don't bow in, uh, in fealty. Yeah. Like giraffes and zebras and all these creatures with very different physicality bowing. I don't in different think ways giraffes can bows. bow. I don't think so, but the legs don't work that way. In retrospect, I guess it's not that weird that I got into animation. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah um this has been a wonderful podcast and something this was the sticking point for me because whenever you whenever you and i discussed we should do disney we'll do like um five podcasts i thought are we gonna like are we gonna do the whole of the 90s renaissance in one go because I, I got so much to say about lion king oh, no, and as it turns were. out a yeah. bunch of others <laughs> 
So yeah, and this is that's probably why it took so long to actually come around to this because I was just thinking, well, I suppose we could just do it modular and like you know we'll just take more time on the ones which we really need to take more time on. I mean, think about we just spent nearly three hours talking about the Lion King. How long did we really talk about fun and fancy free? Yeah. So we'll see you next week for part 34 of this Disney series. (laughs) There are 54 now? 53? Yeah, it's in the... And they're not an equal. Tangle was 50. No, Winnie the Pooh, Wreck-It Ralph. So 53. Frozen. Uh, Big Hero 6 will be 54. Yep. Yep. So by the time this comes out, it'll be 54. Yeah. Nope. Wrong again. (laughs) Moana, 56. But they're not equal. By any means. No. Uh, and, and there'll be people for whom, not many people, but uh, Ichabod and Mr. Toad matters to them as much as The Lion King matters to us. Uh, unfortunately, we're not able to really give each film this level of intensity. But I'm really, really glad we managed to do this for this one. We've now hit the zenith, though. We're now going to kind of start a very slow decline. decline. I have heard arguments that Hunchback is actually the pinnacle of the... Um, uh, Renaissance, and that's something that I'd li- I really like to. I'll see if I can track down an essay that I was uh, sent about that. Yeah, I feel because, like Hunchback um, could have been. I think it falls a little short of it, but it's definitely like it's not. I'm not. It's certainly not to say that the next few films we're going to talk about are bad or or are are even not great. Because there's a lot of great movies we're going to talk about. It's just there's a. It's just the curve starts going in a different direction now. You could describe Beauty and the Beast. Lion King, maybe even Aladdin, as perfect for what they're trying to achieve. There are slight imperfections with other uh, members of the uh, the family throughout the, um, the the 90s Renaissance, but they're still so good. And that's a mark I always try to hit. I don't even try to hit a mark of perfection. I like the little imperfections, the little mess ups, the bits that you know could have been done better because there's always room for improvement. And you know, I think, frankly, hitting a nine or a nine point five is uh, is still a, a massively admirable achievement. Absolutely, yeah. I think part of it might be to do with um, it being in terms of what they're aiming for. There's this phrase kept recurring throughout the documentaries for The Lion King that if you try to aim for a, a worldwide blockbuster that's going to change everybody's perception of how things function you'll fail because you're setting the the target for yourself so high that you can't possibly meet it i think possibly the success of lion king made them a little bit over aware of what the potential for the studio to achieve actually was so from that point onwards that's what they were trying to hit. Well, they were about to stumble pretty hard with a uh, big, jo- big old chunk of hubris named Pocahontas. Yeah, well, it, that's what they keep saying, isn't it? This is the thing, this was the one that they thought was going to be massive. Golden Goose. And then it wasn't. Well, for the fir- first time in um, <sighs> bloody hell since Black Cauldron, it wasn't much fun. We do start hitting an era where... And it is a very Hollywood mentality where they have an enormous success and then everything they create from there has to be that kind of movie. Every every film has to be a massive Lion, that Lion King scale blockbuster type thing. I'd say that's replicated in the AAA video games industry. It's replicated a lot of places, but yeah, but yeah this... Uh, a lot of a lot of places in the entertainment business. 
But uh, yeah, we could learn a lot from the mistakes of Abu. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go for the red jewels, Abu. It's not going to bring you happiness. That statue is going to melt, and you're going to be in a cave of fire. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we will see you next week for Pocahontas. Actually, next week will not be Pocahontas. We're taking a little Disney break here for a few weeks. If you are on our Patreon and have access to Alexander Shaw's Audio Club, you can listen to about 17 minutes of backstage chat with us and Dan that we recorded back on this Lion King episode. If you're not on the Patreon, you are missing out, my friend. Coming up very soon, we have Lego Batman. A series of unfortunate events. That's the movie and the TV show. Three commissioned shows, which will be Doctor Who, the 1996 TV movie. The first arc of the Kamala Khan Ms. Marvel comic book. And I think Terry Gilliam's Brazil. But next week, something very special that some of you may not even have heard of before and more will have not gotten into yet. And after listening to this episode, you may end up a huge fan. We are covering, in super historical depth, the Broadway phenomenon. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you Steamheart Episode 1 will be released in March. In the meantime, take it away, Sir Elton. Bye.
the stars Somehow I sail through our trouble Some have to live with the scars There's far too much to take in here Or to find that can never be found 